My guest today is Eric Weinstein, who is a mathematician and physicist and economist and all-around interesting guy who is currently the managing director of Teal Capital. Now, as most of you know who have listened to previous podcasts, my interviews are really more conversations than interviews. I would guess I usually take up about, I don't know, 40% of the space. But if this exchange seems a little more self-referential than normal, I would just like to give you a little context as to why, which I briefly do in the beginning of my conversation with Eric. Eric actually reached out to me, suggesting that he could help me think a little more clearly about how to engage the kinds of controversial issues I tend to deal with. So while we talk about many different things, the subtext is that he's performing a bit of an intervention on me. So I hope that explains why I didn't ask him more questions about all the fascinating stuff he's into. That'll have to wait until next time. In any case, Eric is a very interesting guy, as you will easily discern, and he was also very generous in his efforts to talk some sense into me. So, without any more preamble, I give you Eric Weinstein. So, I'm here with Eric Weinstein. Eric, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me over. So, I I, I was trying to remember how we got connected and... I, n- I now recognize why I was confused. So I, I heard you on Tim's podcast, and I love that conversation, and was poised to get in touch with you. But then you got in touch with me, I think, just on your own on Twitter, having noticed some of my collisions with people, and you expressed, and I have the quote here, but by email, you were, you were dismayed to find that people who you expected would be rational and not at all anti-intellectual were in conversation with me on various topics, proving to be just that. And you said that they were, you found them trying to rescue the failed bits of multiculturalism at, at seemingly any cost to logic and ethics. And this was at the time, Noam Chomsky and Glenn Greenwald, who you said that of, and you wanted to just reach out and see if you could help. And I, am, I obviously am very happy you did that, and I'm happy to have any help I can get. But then in the setup to this podcast, you had the somewhat comical and perhaps disconcerting experience of pinging some of your friends about me, only to find that at least two of them also counted themselves among my enemies. Maybe enemies is too strong a term for for one of them, but you are friends with Nassim Taleb, the, the quant author of The Black Swan, and he has made his hatred, might not be too strong a word, but he, he certainly made his displeasure with me fairly indelible on Twitter. You know, that is odd for you to discover in the setup here, and also David Eagleman, the the neuroscientist who I had kind of an aborted debate with, and that was far less prickly, but still a failure of communication, which from my side happened very much along the lines of these other failures you notice, where there's a kind of, I guess I, I often think of it as a my opponent or or the interlocutor who becomes my opponent finds him or herself wanting to play a good cop, bad cop routine with me. And I I have a criticism of religion in in most cases here that people find, whether they're religious or not, and in most of these cases, the the other person is not religious, but they find it somehow synonymous with the, the breaking of some kind of taboo, or they consider it uncivil in a way, and they try to take a position against what I think it is undeniably just the, the the intellectually honest position to take at this moment in, in human history, the conversation breaks down. And so, yeah, you and I are going to talk about the limits of, of reason on some level. 
and see if we can advance the tools we have mutually to have rational conversations. But it's just interesting that e- that even the agenda we have here today in this conversation got subtly eroded by you. Perhaps you can tell me, but I would imagine a crisis of confidence on your side, where you because you're you're reaching out to your network to figure out who who is this guy, and you receive some pushback, but. Perhaps in the midst of answering that, you can say a bit about who you are and your, kind of your, your history of intellectual interests and how you, how you come to this conversation. It'd be a pleasure. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, caused me to come down when it's obviously much more convenient to do this over Skype or over the internet is uh, I've seen too many good marriages and rich friendships break, o- break up over ASCII and Unicode, and that there's something about the electronic medium which denies us empathy, face-to-face contact, and very often uh, we get off on a wrong foot and we don't know how to write it in real life. Yeah. And so in part, it's my distrust uh, of whether these are essential conflicts. Uh, this could be like, you know, the Trotskyist, Leninist, Stalinists versus the Stalinist Trotskyists. And uh, these are hair's breadth of difference and that they tend to get much more exaggerated in terms of the heat that they generate. Mm. And then there's also this very interesting problem. And in fact, around my office, we call it uh, the limits of discourse problem after uh, some of your adventures and misadventures. And the question is, who can play? Who, When two people sit down to discuss a topic, is there any dis- set of descriptors which can predict whether the conversation will be rich or whether it will derail over more or less intellectually trivial features? Yeah. So what is your background briefly in in just your your intellectual history and your your current interests? Where where are you focused mostly? I mean, I think by by education and uh, credential, I would be a uh, a mathematician. Uh, I've held positions in mathematics, physics, and economics departments. Um, I've worked in uh, fi- in hedge funds and finance risk. And um, I'm now managing director of Teal Capital, working with Peter Teal in San Francisco on a wide variety of things through the Teal Foundation, our macro trading outfit, and Mm. uh, various venture funds, and um, trying to make the world a better place uh, in both the private sector and public intellectualism. So I know Peter, and not well, obviously, I've just met him a few times, but the first idea for this conversation was actually to have the three of us speak, and scheduling may have made that difficult, but also, I think it's a good thing given what I've said on the podcast about Trump and, and his recent speech to the, the RNC. I just think we would, and I, I would love to talk to Peter, you know, Peter shouldn't take this part the wrong way, but I just think we would have had to have spoken about Trump at length in a way that would have just subsumed everything else in the conversation. And I'm happy to speak about politics with you, but it's, again, this is, this is one of those issues that proves so difficult to talk about. So like, I, I don't, you know, I don't know what the outcome of my talking to Peter about Trump would be, but what do you think it is about politics, perhaps second only to religion, that makes conversation either reliably impossible or just so difficult? It's a great question, of course. Um, I have a 2016 version of, of this answer that might not be the same as, as uh, the answer I'd given in another election year. Uh, I think right at the moment, the problem is, is that a lot of us, um, and I assume you, you and I are roughly the same age. Mm. I'm 50. You're pretty close. 49, yeah. Okay. I think that fundamentally we're, we're trying to express ourselves through people who don't represent us. And this isn't their time. This is our time. And there's no way I can represent myself through Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, or Donald Trump. 
they don't share my experience. I don't have the same reference points that they do. My life doesn't resemble theirs. They went through different formative experiences than I did. And I think that part of the problem is, is that we're trapped in prisons of language and we're grooved in ways of thinking that were adapted to, and I think poorly adapted to the world of the 1980s and beyond. I feel like the Reagan era more or less went from 1980 to 2008. And then we've been in a zombie period where we, we don't have new theories. We just sort of have these old theories that don't die because we don't have anything to replace them with. And they wander the landscape uh, wrecking havoc. Mm. And I think that the, what you're doing and what I, I would like to think that I'm trying to do, and perhaps Peter is doing, is trying to come up with different languages uh, and new, new ways of speaking so that people don't end up in these cul-de-sacs intellectually, which seem to be attracting most of the population. So I think in some sense, it's Sam, it's our failure. It's your and my failure and Peter's failure that we are not expressing ourselves as ourselves. So I, I'm, I'm here as your future running mate, mm-hmm. potentially for 2020. <laughs> I think we're doomed. And that, that says more about me than you. I really think um, if I can make an analogy, let's, let's assume that the marketplace of ideas is something we take seriously. Mm. We've been in sort of a an era previously, which you might think of as like a mutual fund area where there's only long only. Are you for multiculturalism or against it? Are you uh, for immigration or, or against it? And I think that all of the really interesting positions right now are sort of hedge fund-like positions and we'd call them relative value trades. Mm. So, you know, am, am I, I'm for a, a mild increase with a lot of scrutiny on refugees uh, to increase our, our refugee intake because I think it's humane and I think that they make great Americans because they're so grateful that uh, somebody took them in in their hour of need mm. if we screen properly. And I'm against other forms of immigration like skilled immigration uh, increases where we tether people to their employers through H-1B visas. So the idea is I, I don't have a pro or anti position on immigration. I have a long short position. Mm. And I think that because most people don't have an idea that you can hold a long short position um, we're trapped in this nonsense discussion uh, about, in, in, in my opinion, three topics which are dividing us, which are um, trade, immigration, and terror. Mm. And fundamentally, because you and I have not done a great job of pushing out uh, simple models and good language for dealing with these things, uh, I think that the generation before us um, talks in completely inadequate terms. And so it's up to us to rectify it. So that's mm. one of the reasons I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. I think we could probably add race to that list. And then I think it's, it covers at least 80% of our problems. So what is it that you worry about now in terms of, kind of intellectual trends and bad ideas that are regnant? I mean, I, I have this line that I think is true, and I, I, I certainly have used enough to hope it's true, that that bad ideas are worse than bad people. There are not that many bad people in the world. I think you know, on any appropriate metric, there's probably one percent, you know, psychopaths uh, walking around. But what you find more and more often when you pay attention is just that they're they're good people under the sway, or you know, more or less good people, certainly psychologically normal people under the sway of bad ideas, and they think they're doing good, or they're, they're committed to some principle that may be even locally good, or at least ethically defensible, but doesn't survive scaling, or, do, or they're not paying attention to the, the associated costs of living that way or thinking that way. And 
what I constantly find myself in encountering are people who are absolutely sure they are on the right side of an important issue, but they're behaving, to my eye, patently unethically. And I think it probably does have something to do with what you just described as as being non-obvious to them, that you can that you can have a a nuanced or a long short position on any of these topics and have that be not only coherent and intellectually defensible, but perhaps the only intellectually defensible position in the end. And yet it because it doesn't survive the the broad strokes litmus test of are you for immigration or not, or against Islam or not, or for religious pluralism or not, it comes under immediate stigma and kind of straw man attacks. Anyway, that, that's that's one thing that, that I noticed that worries me. But do you, I mean, what, what sort of shibboleths and fake ideas and bad ones are you worried about this moment? All of them. I mean, I'm really actually worried about the abstraction that makes this, uh, makes it so difficult to think. Because one of the things that, um, and this is kind of a half compliment, half critique uh, for you, is that I think it's so hard to do what you're doing, to, to sort of recreate an entire intellectual world from scratch that is of a piece, that is interoperable, self-consistent, moral, mm-hmm. decent, um, but what, which allows you to get everywhere. And I see you as sort of having this it's almost like you've built a yacht that only you can sail with all of these uh, cables and riggings, right. and so that's not going to work. Um, as a gen- you know, I, I am estimating your vocabulary must be something forty thousand words or more. I don't have that, and I think that we have to, in fact, um, first understand that um, most of us ha- aren't going to be able to pull off the trick that you're trying to do. It's too difficult. I've called you mm-hmm. the intellectual Alex Honnold before because. You know, uh, you're like this intellectual free soloist where one, one false move. Now watch me, watch me fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I think it can't be that we, we actually push people to do that. But I think that there's a hidden uh, villain in the story. And I think that the hidden villain um, are these, uh, you know, very often um, three-letter organizations, uh, WSJ, NYT, DNC, RNC, FOX. Um, and what they're doing is a really interesting trick of subtracting narratives that have this long, short character. And so I've, I've come up with this model, which uh, unfortunately we're not doing this on, on video, I'd go to mm-hmm. a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. But um, if you picture an X, Y axis, an X and a Y axis, and the X axis is some sort of um, elite rent-seeking policy, something that the elite rent-seekers want. Can you define uh, rent-seeking? Rent-seeking is the ultimate insult from an economist. It mm-hmm. says that you're trying to profit without really producing anything. Hmm. And so if you're, um, you know, let's say, uh, what was the founding myth um, of the Carlyle Group? They figured out that Eskimos had some right to a tax write-off from a failed Eskimo business. And so it turned out that you could sell those rights in some way and you could profit from it. Right. So it probably wasn't intended to be, uh, you know, for, for a Jewish businessman to figure this out, um, but that would be some form of rent seeking. And mm-hmm. so the real villains in the story aren't the elite, as we say, because I don't think, you know, top intellectuals and great scientists and fantastic athletes are the problem. I think it's the elite rent seekers. And they have certain things they're trying to accomplish. And most of us don't really know who they are. We 
they don't really want a lot of publicity, um, but they're very skilled operators in our system. And when they want a policy, what happens is, is that whatever organs are attached to that group, they tell a story that um, where there's smoke, there is always fire. And the smoke is opposition to their proposal, and the fire is some sort of moral failing. And so if, you, if you'll permit me visually, imagine that you're going counterclockwise um, around uh, the XY plane. So mm. the first quadrant I call the dupes, sometimes the ivy-covered ivy dupes. These are people who have gone to maybe elite schools. They think that they are the elite, but in fact, um, you know, they're probably making less than half a million a year. They may have a second home, but they're not really in control and they don't realize that they are in fact being propagandized. And it's very difficult to work with this because they're convinced that they're the ones in the know. In the second quadrant, you have first principles thinkers, contrarians, uh, and people who are fiercely independent. In the third quadrant, you have troglodytes, um, people who are opposed to the elite um, policies, but are also may have the moral failings that the elite uh, wish to, to tar them with. And in the fourth quadrant, you have the, uh, the shadowy uh, rent-seeking elite. Hmm. And so what happens is that the y-axis is the moral virtue vice axis. And the media narrative is like a straight line running from the southwest to the northeast. It says that there's an absolute correlation between um, people who agree with the elite policy uh, and moral virtue. And so what's happening constantly is if I'm a restrictionist on immigration, but I'm also a xenophile, I have a lifelong love of travel, uh, I care about learning languages, most of my friends uh, come from uh, foreign places, uh, there's some sort of a story that you couldn't possibly be a res restrictionist xenophile. Mm. Uh, you couldn't possibly um, both support the police and be absolutely outraged um, at uh, their killing uh, of innocents in unforgivable circumstances. And so what, what, we're, what we're, we're finding is, is that um, every time we try to tell a story about being in the second quadrant, we get mapped to the third quadrant because we oppose these things, but we don't have the moral failings that they would expect. And, and worse, people who aren't putting the same kind of intellectual energy, but who have an instinct that the elite policies are wrong, uh, they end up in the troglodyte quadrant in quadrant three, unfortunately, um, because their intuition says, I think our immigration must be completely out of control. Who calls uh, illegal aliens undocumented workers? If I take an illegal drug, is that an undocumented drug? If I do a, a, an illegal act of violence, is that an undocumented act? The, the, the Orwellian newspeak triggers many people. And if they can't figure out how to hold the right long, short position, they may just have an instinct to, um, to actually start behaving badly and maybe believe that Mexicans are the source of our problems if they're crossing illegally over the border rather than becoming mostly landscapers uh, mm. you know, or people in the service industry. And so in part, what I'm looking to do is to take the small number of people who are strong enough to try to voice this, this way of thinking and say, you know, it's entirely possible to oppose these policies, which are nakedly uh, rent-seeking, and still be quite virtuous. That expansion of the left-right model to the four-quadrant model, uh, I think is going to liberate a lot of people who've been drifting to the right um, who wonder what happened to the left? What, when did uh, it become a crime 
to support liberal ideas uh, within what is traditionally thought of as left of center politics. When you started that description of the four quadrants, though, I imagine that you, and perhaps I think you suggested that that it is very much a top-down, somewhat star chamber effort to bend humanity to the will of the elite. And I guess that that may be going on as well. It's just, I feel like my encounters with really confused dogmatic thinking from both the left and the right has been more democratized than that. So like, I, it's hard for me to imagine that some of the, the salon writers, say, who attack me or people on the left who now, my friend Majid Nawaz calls the regressive left, people who are, who, for whom any criticism of Islam as a set of ideas and of its consequences in the world becomes synonymous with bigotry and, and even racism. I feel like the people who purvey that confusion are just journalists trying to get by and bloggers, you know, people who are not in touch with whatever rent-seeking elite you uh, imagine may be behind the scenes. So how, I mean, What's are, the transmission are, yeah, are, there, are there two, sure. are two things going on that are fundamentally disconnected or is there actually communication between the, these names we don't know and the journalists and pseudo journalists who we do? There is. I mean, it, first of all, the, the people who you're talking about in Salon, I would probably have in the first quadrant, they would think of themselves as uh, very intellectual, very knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. um, but let's look at the exact construct of how you get into trouble with some of them. They don't mind you being against religions, but it's very important that you are against all religions equally, that no religion is worse or better than any one, any other religion, mm. right? So this, the idea is that is in some sense the policy that all religions must be treated the same way. Um, and I, let's take my religion and Jainism rather than anything involving Islam. So I come from a Jewish background. You cannot tell me that we Jews uh, are no more nor less violent than the Jains. Right. Um, Deuteronomy suggests that uh, savagery is in our past. Uh, we, we probably started this whole Abrahamic um, murderous frenzy against the apostates. And um, we have to take responsibility for it. Now, we don't kill apostates uh, anymore because of some fancy footwork to uh, deactivate the bad code. Mm. But the idea is that somebody who was neither Jewish nor Jain would feel incredibly uncomfortable making the comment that I just made. Mm. Right? right? And so the idea is that he who breaks the uh, equality between religions who voices any difference that some are better or worse on different points uh, must have uh, a moral failing, which that they are secretly bigoted. And so the idea is, is that you are breaking the inference pattern. You don't seem to be, um, it, th th there's no vibe that you give off generically that indicates to me uh, that you particularly hate any particular religion or group of people. Mm. Um, but the idea is that by breaking that one principle, um, the next move is that you are allowed to infer the moral failing that must have led you to do that. And so uh, let's now sub swap out the two religions that we just talked about and talk about, uh, let's say, Islam and Christianity. Mm. So if you wish to say that there's more of a connection at the moment between Islam uh, and terror than Christianity and terror, at least in 2016. Mm. This is prima facie obvious. There's just from statistics that nobody who's looking 
at at what's going on, I think can claim that the suicide bombings uh, are higher in Christianity than they are uh, in Islam. However, um, I, should, I should say just as a caveat there that you will have people, and there have been articles written on this topic, I think even in Salon, claiming that right-wing Christian terrorism in the U.S. is a worse problem than Muslim terrorism. And they get to that number by first starting counting the bodies after September 11th, right? And, and you know, obviously there's been very few terrorist incidents of any type in the U.S. since then. And they throw in attempted terrorist attacks and right. you know eco, you know eco terror acts of eco terrorism for instance you know you destroy a car dealership that's domestic terrorism it gets counted against islamic terrorism so in any case that's there are people who believe contrary to all kind of rational analysis of the evidence that christian terrorism in the us is a much bigger problem and is a likely bigger problem going forward and and i'm not against a, a careful I mean, I, I have no prejudices against. I, I might point out something that almost never gets pointed out: that if I'm not mistaken, uh, all of the people who have successfully penetrated the U.S. Capitol building mm. as suicide terrorists have been Jewish. Uh -huh. I think there's only one guy, yeah, right, right, and right, he was an Israeli. Yeah. Now, of course, yeah. uh, I, that can go crazy on Twitter. Um, but I think this is a you know what we would call steel manning our opponent's point. We we can point to. Um, we can help our opponents make their case, and then try to show them that we come in we come in good faith. Because yeah. what we're really interested in is not pointing fingers at any particular group. We're interested in figuring out uh, how to restore civility. And a much better argument against that would be to say that every um, you know A ten warthog uh, is an instrument of terror. And mm -hmm. I really want to talk about message violence and the way that states communicate message violence, which would probably be something that Noam Chomsky would want to discuss. Mm. And uh, you know, I think that, that that that's a that's a fair point. But where where it gets suspicious is where you start to see the motivated reasoning, which mm. is how do I shut you down so that you don't point at something which feels very dangerous? And I think that you have an instinct to point at very dangerous things, not to make the danger worse. But we don't yet have a truly terrible terror problem, you know, ex ante, ex post. If you're, mm -hmm. if it's your child is murdered, you, you know, that your terror problem uh, as bad as it gets, is yeah. as bad as it gets. However, what you and I are both worried about is where we are headed, future instability, and how we could get into a mess that we will uh, not really be able to get out of without significant. Uh, damage and injury to the American experiment that I think that both of us are very excited about, even if we're troubled about where it is at the moment. Mm. And I think what you're really doing is you're looking forward and you're extrapolating and you're thinking ahead and you're getting penalized in some sense for yeah. that act. Oh, interesting. Maybe I'll unpack that a little bit because that's that's all too true. So, I, I, But you use this phrase steel manning, which I haven't heard much, but obviously it's the opposite of straw manning someone's argument. And I think it's a crucial feature of what I would generically call intellectual honesty. If you're going to argue against a position, at minimum, you should be able to summarize your opponent's view in a way that he wouldn't find fault with. And better still, if you summarize it in a way that that's even better than he or she would come up with on his own, then that is the thing you take down in your argument. That is 
the way any really civil and productive debate should operate. And what I find most difficult to deal with, our podcast listeners will will have heard this a thousand times, but are the the misrepresentations of my positions wherein the the the, the critic isn't even interacting with a view I hold and I'm getting smeared for this fake view. And I think that's a, you know, as a general principle of public conversations and just one's interpersonal dealings with people who you you don't agree with, steel manning is something we should just have in our, our heads as something we, we, we need to do and expect should be done toward us in, in these conversations. But the other the other point you you make is is true, which is and this is this is often a point of confusion. I it's not that I think that the immediate risk of death from terrorism for any American or any Westerner, really, or really even any person in the Muslim world, though they, they run a far greater risk than we do outside of it. It's not that I think that risk is immediately intolerable and worse than any other, other thing we could be worried about. You and I are far more likely to die in a car accident in the U.S. than as a result of terrorism. But what I worry about are, as you said, I worry about where this is all headed, and and in at least two senses. There, there's obviously the risk of much bigger forms of terrorism. You can we can worry about nuclear terrorism and biological terrorism, and I think it would be at this point actually surprising if some something you know orders of magnitude bigger than we've seen doesn't happen in the next fifty years, right? So it's it's this is it's this is not science fiction. It's not an irrational fear. I think given how bad we are at stopping the proliferation of technology and given that technology is only becoming more potent and given that there's you know, nuclear materials that are not getting uninvented and given that the, you know, the proliferators and the terrorists only have to be right once, as the security people say, and we have to be right all the time, the idea that we're not going to have at minimum a dirty bomb go off in, in a major city rendering some part of it uninhabitable for for decades that seems actually far-fetched to me and given our capacity to overreact to things so say even so take what may in fact be the worst case scenario you have a nuclear bomb that goes off in the port of Los Angeles or in Times Square and it kills it's a you know a small one and it kills let's say 100,000 people outright 100,000 people, more than 100,000 people die in our society every year from medical errors. Uh, the last time I looked, it was like something like 200,000 people die from iatrogenic insults because doctors and nurses don't wash their hands or give the wrong medication, et cetera. And yet, so we absorb those deaths year after year after year, and we absorb every other species of death, whether it's you know from smoking or car accidents or our own use of firearms. And yet, if a bomb went off in a city and killed 100,000 people, our reaction to that, rightly or wrongly, I mean, you can certainly defend, you could defend a different reaction to that than our reaction to heart disease, say, but our reaction to that and our overreaction to that would very likely just derange human history for a generation at least. So I think you have to price in our capacity to overreact to these things into the real world cost of these things happening. And so in any case, that's just to, to expand upon what you, what you already just said. I think it's, it's a, and, there's a, and the problem is there's, there's usually not time enough to spell out everything in, in the context of saying, listen, we need to be worried about 
this phenomenon of global jihadism. And there's a reason why we are appropriately worried about what is being said and not being said in one community among all the other religious communities. We're worried about the reform of Islam. We're not worried about the reform of Methodism and Mormonism and Scientology, and for good reason. And that's something that at a certain point can't require a 10-minute defense. It has to be, we have to have the shorthand version of that that's accepted everywhere we talk about these things. Well, one of the things that I say that's unpopular in some quadrants is that things that rhyme tend to be more true. Now, it's not it's not universal. Obviously, when somebody says, if the, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit, mm. um, that, that may or may not be right. But in general, humans, uh, when they have something very important to say, try to hone it to a fairly well. And they make it mimetic. They make it easy to remember. It's probably, in some sense, uh, you know, sort of syntactic sugar for the brain so that it remembers Mm. Uh, the wisdom, and I believe that it's important to have the hyperlinked statement so that when you, if you don't agree with the statement, you can click on it, you can see the paragraph version, the paragraph yields to the essay, really yields to the book. Mm. So depending upon how much information you need to support an idea, um, uh, it's there. So if you made a statement, for example, that global jihadism is actually one of the most serious things that we're facing, somebody says, come on, Sam, you know, shark attacks. Uh, are incredibly rare, but because of Shark Week, uh, we're in a constant state of terror. Um, okay, well then that person would need to click on the hyperlink to see why it is that you actually aren't going down that path. Mm. And so I think it's important that the user uh, and the listener be able to be in dialogue with your statements. So I think you need to make the same statement at four different levels that fail over into each one into the next. Um, when you're when you're making these points. And I think that there are too few of these honed statements at top level that neatly point mm. um, to the backups. Because in general, whenever I run something to ground that you're trying to say, um, I may not get it at first. I may not understand it. And I may not, uh, so I, I often am arguing with my misinterpretations of you. Mm. And um, every time I think I've got you on something, uh, I discover some podcast, some book, some talk where you've actually covered it and maybe not everyone but it's it's happened to me enough times um uh, in listening to you that i'm i'm feeling that uh i now expected the default i need a better me to to speak for me in in those cases does anything come to mind as an example of something that was initially problematic that you ran to ground and were satisfied or or not i think for example some of the spirituality stuff i think that um well, I, I have some things that I haven't run to ground yet. For mm -hmm. example, I think you've said things that people can't, you've said that people can't change their beliefs the way they change their clothes. And mm -hmm. I think I'm actually pretty good at that. Um, I think I maintain different rooms in my mind. I actually have what I call a jihadi sandbox where I, I listen to the nasheeds, I watch mm -hmm. the videos, I read Inspire and Dabiq and all these things. And, and I let the jihadi in me become animated so mm -hmm. that I can study my own reaction. Um, and I wonder, you know, sometimes I see you as, uh, this is like me being really critical of you, mm -hmm. as the guy running into a, a you know, a screening uh, of the Godfather and saying, what's wrong with you people? Don't you realize it's just photons, you know, projected against a wall? And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I need to know in part how you reconcile my need for fiction, theater, Mm. Uh, distortions of belief. I believe that, in fact, in my least distorted states, it's usually achieved. Um, by having lots of different uh, fictions, falsehoods, and incomplete pictures that together yield a fa fairly complete picture. But 
you know, it's, it, I, I'm fond of the double distortion of somebody wearing glasses where their eyes are distorted and their glasses are further distorted, but the compound of the two mm. is an undistorted picture. So there are ways in which I worry that the sort of new atheist project um, really has a very limited market because uh, it's very important for me, for example, on Friday nights to put away my atheism uh, and go into a Jewish traditional Shabbat dinner where it's not that we're wink, wink, nudge, nudge uh, going to have Shabbat dinner. We actually kind of go through it and try to do the prayers uh, right. straight up. And at some point, my daughter was in a, a Jewish um, preschool and they asked her something about believing in God. And she said, uh, oh, I only believe on God on Fridays. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's actually uh, a more healthy perspective. That's something that I don't know whether you've you've talked about it or dealt with no, it. No, no, I haven't. Well, I don't know that I could sign on the dotted line with your daughter's statement there, but I, I think there's something a little euphemistic creeping in there, perhaps for her or for you. But I think the general picture you paint of a multiplicity of beliefs, which aren't necessarily reconciled in any single brain or certainly any single moment and a kind of piecemeal worldview that we change in and out depending on context. I think part of that's inevitable. I think it's, and I said this somewhere, it probably was, I think it was my first book, The End of Faith. I mean, just, it, it's probably computationally inevitable. I think, I think there was a, an example I gave where if you just looked at, at the computational requirements of checking a list of propositions for logical contradiction. And I mean, this is an NP complete problem where as you add propositions, the runtime for even a computer the size of a universe with components the size of protons with switching speeds at the speed of light, you still would, after 15 billion years, you'd be fighting to add, I think it was the 300th belief to the list, right? So it's like, we're, we are not going to be perfectly coherent, even if, even if our minds worked as just checking a list of propositions for you know syllogistic error so there there will be contradictions and there is a just neurologically speaking a committee in there that is pulling the gears and levers of of emotion and behavior and we have a very strong emotional attachment to certain things which can cloud our cooler judgments about what is real but i just think that that in science and in clear thinking generally we do our best to, at least in those conversations when we're asked, you know, what do you really believe is real? We do our best to only promote to kind of the canonicity, you know, in our worldview, those things that we think we can defend based on evidence and argument and logic. And, and we can be wrong about that. It's just that the, the, the possibility for incoherence in one's worldview can be pretty startling because, I mean, there are people who well, in this in this case, in in the end of faith, my wife and I were in Paris, and we had, as a conscious decision, decided not not to go near the American embassy. This was brilliant. Yeah, and then we were also, and those of you who haven't heard this, you can listen to the. I think it was my last podcast on the where I'm re actually reading the end of faith on the podcast, and I, I read this episode. But and we were trying to get get a hotel room with a view of the embassy garden, and the phrase American embassy was just functioning in two dis discrete and incompatible ways in our minds. And so we just had a, you know, a folie à deux. And it wasn't reconciled for us until a friend said, 
don't you realize we, we had actually checked into the hotel with a view of the American embassy and, and a friend said, what the hell are you doing? You're right. It's the 4th of July. You're right next to the American embassy. And then we, then the walls came down and we realized we had, had been both seeking and seeking to avoid proximity to the American embassy all day long. Now that's a, an especially crazy instance, which even now I can't understand how, how it was true of me, but no doubt there are many things I think are true which are incompatible with other things that I think are, are true. And only conversation with oneself and, and experiences, reading and argument with others can, can bring those to light. So for instance, your, your jihadi sandbox, I, I also have that jihadi sandbox and I have a, a blog post that I've referenced a few times on the podcast entitled Islam and the Misuses of Ecstasy, where I, I try, try to describe in a series of, of embedded videos just how deep my sympathy with the surface features of, of Muslim religion and, and spirituality runs. And, you know, I think the call to prayer is one of the most beautiful things ever to appear on earth. I, I, I love the sound of it. I love the sound of it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a great one that I linked to in that blog post. And I love Kowali music, Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, the, the Pakistani Song singer. in Boston. Yeah. What, what a show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's unfortunately, I never got a chance to do that. And I love the poetry of Rumi, and I and I and I even get what the have you talked about this on any of your shows. Not not at length, but I've I've so I've this, I wanted to come yeah. down here and talk to you about this in particular sure. because I think one of the things that's going on is that you do not spend enough time talking about all of the fantastic contributions of this culture, and um, you point in one case at the really appalling lack of scientific achievements mm. of Muslims, let's say since the Nobel Prize um, has been given out. I think there have been three in the sciences and one of them was uh, to the great Ahmadi Muslim uh, who contributed to the standard model of physics. Mm. Um, so he would be considered uh, not a Muslim in Pakistan. Right. Um, but I think one of the problems is you're not advertising the emotional valence that I've secretly suspected you must have. Mm. So, you know, when I, when I, when I struggle with this, I have a, a, a friend group that is disproportionately Islamic and, um, it's been one of the great experiences of my life since I was 16. My, my, my closest friend, um, you know, welcomed me into his family, his culture, mm. uh, a completely eye-opening experience. And this is a, a friend from high school or friend from college. Mm. And, um, he, uh, you know, his family engaged in traditional practices with the hand kissing and, and f touching feet and all sorts of, um, or I guess the feet touching was a different kind of field of uh, respect, but the family was so courageous. I mean, his sister was brutally gang raped in India and the, uh, the father supported his daughter um, mm. talking about it openly when you would imagine that there the feelings of shame and the issues of honor would have been dominant. Mm. And so in my life, um, I have traveled uh, always openly as a Jew in the Islamic world, and I've been treated incredibly well. I believe that if the Nazis were ever to recur, uh, the floorboards under which I would be hidden would likely be Muslim floorboards. Hmm. Um, so it's very painful uh, to not have this long, short language where 
in general, um, I've been in, you know, in a, in a largely Islamic social context since I was, since I was 16, people don't ever address you as oh crusader. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that kind of speech that you get used to watching ISIS videos, which most people don't watch, but I've, I've watched a great deal of them just because I, I need to know about this. Uh, you're talking about two completely different worlds that are connected. And I think it's really important to advertise more, more heart, more empathy, more emotion, mm. because otherwise the very dry analytic way in which you go about thinking about this, I think it's, gets too much play in a certain sense. You were so logical that the fact that the texts say these very clear things or that there's ambiguity, but there's a hierarchy for resolving the ambiguities. It, this appeals to your analytic mind. And I think both you and I have an analytic bent and we would be much more tempted were we highly religious to go down these sort of, well, you know, it says here in the text that this is true. And if I really believe this is the infallible word of the creator and that uh, uh, I'm going against God not to follow directions, we would be tempted by that interpretation. And mm-hmm. so I think in part, it's a little bit um, perverse that you almost have more sympathies with the literal versions uh, of of the religion than you do with what you call, and I think it's somewhat disparaging, nominal members of the of these religions. And if mm-hmm. I can tell one story from my own, because I sure. know it better, I grew up uh, in an atheist Jewish household, and my wife, who is from India, grew up as a Jew in Bombay. Um, and so uh, our commonality was Judaism. So we, we got married in a Jewish context. Mm. Now, when I went to the rabbi, uh, I said, I, w- I want to do this by the book. So he laughed and he said, well, why don't you write the ketubah for your, your, your wedding contract? Um, so we, we wrote something, we gave it back to him. He says, this, he says, I can't work with this. This is garbage. So he said, you know, the, why don't you come, b- come back with another version? So we, we did it and he said, this is poetry. This is poetry. It's, this is the bride price of virgins. Treat it like a contract. So we went back to the original, tried to do a, a modern version of it, uh, you know, and, and sort of an isomorphic version. And finally he says, uh, this is the worst I've seen. I've been marrying people for decades. Huh. So finally I, I exploded at him. And I said, Rabbi Gold, I said, you know, I, I've put hours and hours into this and uh, I don't think it can be done. And he looks at me and he says, aha. And I said, well, what is that about? He said, well, he said, you're trying to get married in a, uh, you know, more than 5,000 year old tradition. And you have an idea that there is a by the book. And it's very important that you understand that it is impossible to be a Jew by the book because this particular contract says the bride price of virgins will be in Zuzim, some currency that Mm. hasn't existed for years and that the contract itself cannot be a formality. It actually has to mean something. And since nobody knows what a zuz is anymore, uh, it's literally impossible to fulfill. Now, I don't know if that's exactly right or exactly wrong, but his point was is that it's all create your own Judaism. There is no true Judaism. Right. And I think that that was liberating for me because I was having a very hard time following some rules, not others. I don't really like pork, you know, hmm. really good prosciutto and pepperoni is, you know, is a pleasure. And I, I was always too far to, to walk to the synagogue on Saturdays. So I think that it's very important to realize that there is no way usually to fulfill these texts. And as a result, um, 
uh, this lines up with what Majid Nawaz talks about, about multiple interpretations are the beginning of de-radicalization. And I think what you struggle with a lot is that you're very sympathetic to the literal and you're much less sympathetic to the uh, doped with nonsense or, you know, clearly our Judaism in the modern era is doped with Christianity, which I think is a pretty good thing. Mm. Um, if, if it goes too far, I get very alienated. But I, I think it's important to realize that the nominal versions of these religions um, are in some sense the true versions of these religions within the civilized modern era and the literal attempts to go back to, I don't know, sixth century or some thousands yeah. of years before Christ are, uh, this is nonsense. So to, to rewind all the way to the point of my not expressing my sympathy with the liturgy and iconography and spirituality and-, and Food, architecture, it, music. Yeah, yeah of, of these cultures enough. I guess the, the way I have decided to go long short there is not so much focusing on those features, although I have a little bit, but more to point out that my my real sympathy and solidarity is with the people who are suffering most under theocracy. And th those are, in this case, actual other Muslims who are not disposed to live under theocracy. So it's liberal Muslims, it's Muslim women, it's apostates, it's free thinkers. And you know, I try to come around, if I don't do it in every paragraph, I try without letting too many minutes elapse on the clock to come around to the point just the, the stark acknowledgement that obviously no one suffers the consequences of global jihadism and Islamist theocracy more than Muslims do. And, and, and it's the Muslims I hear from, you know, the ex-Muslims and the, and the liberal Muslims, who I am always thinking about in addition to worrying about the civilizational consequences of, of jihadism. And, I, and I'm also aware that my sympathy with spiritual aspiration and spiritual experience you know my my like my finding something intelligible in, in the poetry of rumi doesn't survive collision with the doubts in the brains of many of much of my audience i mean you know, I, I i speak to atheists and secularists who who have no idea what i'm talking about when i talk about meditation and they certainly have no idea what rumi's talking about and many of them don't want to know and so there's there's you know it's not i don't really i'm not censoring myself on the basis of that but it's just Rumi's not so interesting to, to much of my audience, or at least hasn't been thus far. The other reason why I focus on literalism is because I think there, there is an, a, there's an asymmetry here and a real advantage to the literalists, and I don't know how we ever get out from under this thing, because the issue for me is that there there is a more and less plausible reading of any scripture, right. and this is what I ran into with with Majid in our conversation together. So so the so the implausible readings don't survive very well because they are in fact implausible. It is it is you can't really read any of these traditions to speak of the Abrahamic ones, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. You can't read any of their scripture and get as a plausible reading the value that homosexuality is just as good, ethically speaking, as heterosexuality, or that women are and, and must be the political equals and the moral equals to men, right? So it's what you have to do is you have to bring those modern values to the text and cherry pick and leverage in ways that is a bit of a, a pantomime of 
scholarship, it's not really, I mean, you, you, you know what you want the answer to be in advance, right? right. It's, it's, not like, it's not like you're discovering those values in the text because actually the antithesis is in the text. I mean, where, wherever those topics are touched, for the most part, it's certainly clearest on, on the case of, of homosexuality, it's just, it's anathema, right? So it's, you know, it's, it's anathema in the Hebrew Bible, it's anathema in St. Paul, it's certainly the anathema in, in the Quran and the Hadith. And so it's, it's a, if you want gay people in the 21st century to have all the rights and privileges and respect that you do and a right to want, well, then you have to find some rationale by which to ignore these texts now, or at least those parts of the text. So, I mean, one thing I, I would like people to be is just honest about that process. But, the, but the, the problem is that once you become honest about that process, there is something fundamentally corrosive about that because you're, you, you are bringing merely human values mm-hmm. to this project. And based on your own moral wisdom, 20, the 21st century upgrade to your ethical firmware, right. you are valuing those modern moral intuitions more than you are valuing the word of God in that case. And being honest about that, I think, is, is in fact necessary for modern people to really modernize and, and tolerate a plurality of views and, and, in this case, accept things like gay marriage. But in the face of that, the fundamentalist, the literalist, always has the advantage of being able to say, you see, these apostates are not living by the letter of the text. It says right here what you should do. So who is living by the letter of the text? Now, well, you might say ISIS. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're certainly aspiring they're trying. to. Well, yeah, I, they're, they're doing their best but, job. But, but let, let me again drag it back to Judaism because uh, I'm always happier mm. uh, playing in my own backyard than uh, hopping the fence into somebody else's. Right. I think, uh, Sam, that even what you just said is not is not exactly right. Um, the way, and, and again, I wish this was original to me, but it came from uh, Ben Zion Gold, who uh, just, just left us. And uh, what he said to me is he said, you realize that our rules for freeing slaves after, I don't know what it is, seven years or something like that, were progressive in their time. Mm. Um, and he said, do you wish to be loyal to the spirit of Judaism? Which was progressive in its in its day, literal Judaism. But if you tried to implement slavery now, you'd be absolutely regressive. So you are in fact forced into choosing between letter and spirit. And why is it that you have decided that the letter is the true, and the spirit is the false? And I think that you know you you, you were pawing at this with the Quran, and I, th- I think this is an incredibly important issue, which is that the Quran resists. And, and I'm going to dip into science a little bit, a sort of regulated expression model. So if you think about the discovery of the operon in DNA, mm-hmm. where you have uh, something that digests, I don't know, sugar, and uh, you don't want that uh, protein produced uh, on moss when there's no sugar around, so you, you have some repressor that sits on the DNA, and when there's sugar around, the repressor is lured off of it, and the uh, protein are transcribed and they digest the sugar. And so there are parts of the code that you want to be active sometimes and not active others. So the problem, of course, with uh, Islam is, is that it really is very well constructed to resist a lot of this innovation, hmm. which I think was Baida Bida, it's this concept that you're not supposed to innovate uh, yeah. around the literal. But um, the fact is, is that regulated expression has always been a part 
uh, of these religions. And so if you find somebody who is claiming, no, 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 it's a literal, this is just, just literal, and we have to live by the letter of the book, and you point out the contradictions, and you point out all of these things, you point the thing about spirit, you can start to say, you know, God, if, if God exists, is certainly open source. We've uh, cracked the nucleus of the cell, the nucleus of the, of the atom. We, we've learned a tremendous amount, and God is inviting us to understand how he or she uh, has put this whole construct together. And so, you know, is it, it's clearly the Quran is not the last word, nor is the, the, the Torah, because mm. uh, in fact, God has left so much information, uh, sh- should he or she exist, uh, that wasn't available then, which is our text. If I, you know, I spit into a tube at some point and sent it off to 23andMe, and I was astounded that it came back, uh, you know, Jew. Mm-hmm. It's like 96.8 Ashkenazi Jewish. And so, with with the multiple parentheses around your name, <laughs> <laughs> those, those were added later. But uh, you know, I, I think that part of the problem is is that I mean, it's almost like the ISIS variant really appeals to your logical, consistent mind, saying you know, if it is about the text and the text is perfect, this is the this is the closest uh, any nation on earth has come to trying to carry this out. And you know, I, I was always bothered. Why is it? that homosexuals are thrown off of buildings. And I had to you know, ch- chase it down, as you must know, to the hadiths mm-hmm. where it says, you know, that sodomites should be taken to the tops of cliffs and thrown off and buildings stand in for cliffs. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the ultimate weirdness is the denial that there is any link whatsoever between these texts and let's say this particular method of execution mm-hmm. of these supposed sodomites. And I think it's actually entirely possible to push back against these things by looking at the fact that everybody who sets themselves up as a literalist uh, is in fact going to be failing uh, by one form or another. And so when you realize that we are all failing to live within these religions, mm. and that it is impossible uh, to be as they instruct, um, everything opens up. And mm. so I think that in part, uh, this is actually a Sam Harris trap uh, based upon uh, your capacity to decamp and to explore internally consistent ideologies which you do not share before i push back against any of that l- come l- to jesus yeah, yeah. Uh, well I, I let me just say that i have come to jesus jesus in the sense that i acknowledge that the trend that we have to foster is just what you describe we we need modernizing reformists looser interpretations of all these traditions and that's that's the end game for civilization the end game is not for everyone to wake up on a Tuesday agreeing with me that all of this is divisive nonsense and they have to be hang up their shingle as, as atheists or skeptics. But first of all, my, my concern is that any analogy to Judaism is very likely misleading in the sense that Judaism really is an idiosyncrasy for, for, for many reasons, theologically, historically, as a matter of just demographics at this moment. And I mean, it's, it's true to say of Judaism and impossible to say of most other religions that you can find people who, for whom the religion, their Judaism is very important, and they might even be rabbis, and they might even be conservative rabbis, although they, they're not going to be ultra-Orthodox, and they believe almost nothing in the books, right? They just, they, they're, they're wedded to the tradition, they like the music, they like Shabbat, they like the, the, the food. The food isn't so great. That I think is objectively true. Sam, do you know the only problem with Jewish cooking? No. 72 hours later, you're hungry again. <laughs> <laughs> so I think analogies to, to Judaism are dangerous because so many 
Jews, even quote religious Jews, are deeply secular, and some believe almost nothing supernatural in the service of their religion. And I've you know I debated them. The, the one instance I keep coming back to is I was debating. I think it was it was Hitch. It was a debate that Hitch and I did with two rabbis, David Wolpe and Rabbi Artson. I think it was. And at one point, I said something that presupposed that I think it was Wolpe, who's who's conservative. He's not reformed. I said something that presupposed that he believed in a God who can hear our prayers. And he turned to me and he said, just aghast. He said, well, "What what makes you think I believe in a God who can hear our prayers?" Right. And so, and then you know, I was momentarily flabbergasted. It's like, so what are we? What do you actually believe, you know, given that you do this as your full-time job. But you can't really map that onto Islam or Christianity. Certainly, it's it's American variant in any realistic way. But my, my other, my problem with, with some of what you said there is that, yes, you can take the, the claim about slavery in, in the Hebrew Bible. Yes, the, the, you can say, well, there's the letter here, but then there's the, the modernizing spirit or the liberal liberalizing spirit of the text. But I just have two issues with that. One is that it was possible even 2,000 years ago to understand ethically that slavery was wrong and to have a tradition that just repudiated it or certainly never endorsed it. That kind of wisdom was you know, among the Jains or the Buddhists. I'm sure there are Greek philosophers who I can't think of at the moment who thought slavery was wrong. It was possible to have that insight and my other fundamental concern is just that it would be possible for you and I to invent a religion right now that was better than any existing religion. It would, it would, in fact, we could, we could make it just as irrational. We could, we could put a hell at the back of it, like believe this list of propositions and be committed to these behaviors, or you will spend eternity in hellfire after death. But the list of propositions and behaviors we would come up with would be fundamentally benign and constructive and a much better operating system for a global civilization in the 21st century than any of these religions. I'm not sure about that. Okay, well then, but the, but if you're not sure about that, then take your favorite of the old school religions right. and just rem- remove a few of the bad precepts. You know, just change the bit about homosexuality and slavery and you've you've in in 30 seconds you've improved Judaism and Christianity and Islam. So, well, in part um I'm not sure the best way of making this point. There, there are several things I care about other than truth. And one of them is fitness uh, mm. in the sort of uh, sense of uh, natural and sexual selection. I also care uh, about meaning, and I also care about productivity. And so I see you as caring much more about truth uh, among those four objectives than I do. I, I'm more mm. balanced. So if somebody puts a gun to my head and asks me a question, I in general want to give them the answer that will cause them not to shoot me. Mm. I assume that would be the same for you. Um, I think that meaning is a a different thing. So when I go full atheist in in that compartment of my mind, um, I often have some trouble uh, recovering as much meaning as I'd like. Um, I can do more than the religious think that I can do. But there are some problems about, you know, repeated games with boundary conditions and Reasons for heaven and hell are not necessarily stupid, uh, even if they don't exist. Um, I think it's important to have often religions that are far enough back that it's not Sam and Eric's, uh, you know, new faith like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, mm. um, because it helps to bury it in mysticism so that it's not clear what its origin is. Joseph Smith obviously is pretty recent and gets a little crazy. Mm. Um, 
I, I think that fitness is something which Dawkins has really wrong. And um, the best version of this would probably be something coming from my brother, Brett Weinstein, an evolutionary theorist, but I'll give my version of his perspective or sometimes our shared perspective, which is that it can't be the case that religion is a virus in, in some sense of the mind. It's clearly part of fitness because it's just too expensive in most cases that it would be driven out. So when you have these mysterious things that aren't, are not obviously positive, um, that seem to carry a burden for their, for their host, uh, mm. in general, they have to be delivering some kind of a benefit because it's, it would be easy to excise them. And so because Dawkins seems to view this as uh, this is a tax uh, on fitness, um, well, I don't know that he would go that far. Maybe he said that somewhere, but he's he's against the idea of group selection level right. uh, advantage, which uh, you know many biologists are. They just think that it's it's not a a ultimately coherent idea. But I, for for me, I, I mean, I actually don't have a, a dog in that fight. I just think that I view religion as a a subset of just our 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 efforts at cognition and it's, it's 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 essentially the first science and i think it's an increasingly failed science i mean that these are our oldest accounts of what's happening in the world and we just happen to still have these books on mm -hmm. hand and the traditions that have they've spawned so you ask you know how the world how did we get here and how did the world how did the world come into being before us the first account of the of these processes is religious and when you ask you know how should we behave here so as to to maximize human flourishing, the first account of our ethics is also religious, and we we've continued the conversation on all of these fronts for right. thousands of years. But in most cultures, most of the time, that progress has been somewhat, you know, more or less shackled to this the ballast of of the tradition that's being dragged, kicking and screaming into the future. And science is the most refined version of that conversation that has kind of butted off from philosophy, where we have more of a methodology for testing claims. But I don't, I don't see it as fundamentally different. I, if you're going to ask me, you know, just list some of your beliefs right. about the universe, most of my beliefs are beliefs that I have accepted on, on the basis of some authority. I haven't run all the experiments myself, even thought experiments. Most of what is in my head as claims about reality that I think are true, that I would bet a lot of money on if you you know ask me to just wager on on different pieces of my worldview these are claims that i have accepted based on this wider conversation in science and in other areas like history and you know, journalism you know the, you know who, if if i'm if i had to bet you know, is donald trump really running for president well yes i'm given what i've seen on television and read in the paper uh, i'm reasonably sure of it as astonishing as that is but you know, I haven't met the man. I wasn't at the convention. Right. I, I don't have ta a tactile sense of, of what's happening there. I have just, I've just read certain things, right? And seen a certain informational record of what's happening. And religion is part of that is, is just the increasingly least plausible part of it, given the basis of it, of its claims to truth. So I, I, I disagree. I so I disagree yeah. somehow yeah. With, with, with this. Okay. Um, I, I guess what I see is that uh, under the rug of flourishing, um, you have swept out the fact that religion is a tool for one group to outcompete another uh, at a, let's say at a genetic level or with some of the innovations coming from Christianity to move from 
inclusive fitness of gene to meme, sort of Hamiltonian mm. mimetics, if you will. Right. And um, But have you read, I, I, I covered this briefly on one podcast, and it's, it's a little dense for people to parse by audio, but did you ever read Steve Pinker's objection to group selection on edge.org? You've, you've published on edge, so you, I know you're familiar with it. Right. But, so anyway, Steve went after group selection in a fairly comprehensive way and in a way that that I found convincing. But I, I mean, obviously there's- I'm not, I'm not making a group selection argument. Okay, I mean, well, you, that, you, could, you could make a multi-level selection argument that would sound like a group selection argument. Right. And, well, the, you know, this well, the is the level, problem, this the, is the problem like epigenetics sounds like Lamarckian uh, uh, evolution of some kind. And right. um, that's part of the problem with our science and, and the, the religious nature of um, systems of selective, of the field that studies systems of selective pressures, that in trying to uh, exclude and lock out soft thinking that comes from religion, it hardened prematurely into uh, a dogma. And uh, mm. well, I think Darwin got most things right. Um, it's very unclear to a lot of us that um, that the uh, con concretizing of uh, the mechanisms of selection, mm. uh, in fact, uh, carry the same weight as the the abstract theory. The abstract theory is actually more powerful, and I highly encourage you at some point to have my brother on mm. on the on the program because I think he's doing research in this area, and I think most of it is pretty credible. But I do think that what you're looking at is something like inclusive fitness, um, multi-level selection rather than group selection, and a really delicate and interesting interplay between gene and meme. Well, so let's let's table that. Let, let's just say I accept all of that. Right? Okay. So I accept that that religion has, for the purposes of this conversation, I accept that that certain groups based on their religious worldview have outcompeted other groups and that Therefore, our ancestors benefited from their religiosity in some ways, and th and those groups that weren't sufficiently religious and enthralled to their myths couldn't figure out how to survive a collision with those cultures. Right. So let's let's just accept that for the purposes of of your argument. That doesn't suggest to me that at this moment, where we're on the cusp of building a global civilization, right. where all boundaries have come down, and now we're figuring out just you know what to do with nation states, it doesn't su suggest to me that that religion is conferring any kind of adaptive advantage, certainly not in, in evolutionary terms, and it's not, con it's not improving our ability to collaborate peacefully with strangers in other groups. And it may in fact be, you know, it's, it's on my short list for divisive ideologies that could cause the, you know, the biggest bombs to fall on the biggest cities at some point in the future. And so when I ask, if you ask the question, just how useful is it or adaptive is it or how suggestive of the fitness of, of, of our species is it that at this moment, 1.6 billion people have a greater or lesser degree of commitment to their identity as Muslims, as opposed to any other identity on offer. I think if you could wave a magic wand and get all that to go away and just right. make all those people humanists, yeah. you have you have scored you know, uh, the, the ultimate victory. Most of those victory. people have a really highly developed humanist module. So one of, the, one of the reasons that I push back on this is just direct personal experience. I, I always found it somewhat terrifying 
to travel with an obviously Jewish last name. Mm. Um, and there was only, I think, one time when I was in Cargill in the north of, uh, in India and in Kashmir, where uh, I ran across anti-Semitic posters in the streets. It was right on the line of control between India and Pakistan, having just crossed the Great Himalayan Range. Mm. And I was terrified. And I was with a, you know, with with uh, Muslim friends. So um, by virtue of the fact that I have run that experiment, I would not run that experiment now, and I don't think that my children will run that experiment. Mm. Um, but it, I, I do think that you have to realize that we all have these different modules and the regulated expression uh, concept says that uh, in general, you can count on um, these people as having uh, very strong identifications as being good people, family people, finding commonalities. And I think it's really important also that um, we realize that different groups fall on hard times uh, through different periods. So the, you know, the Greeks were obviously uh, kicking ass for a long time and then mm. they became prisoners to a, you know, an ancestor worship cult uh, because of what modern Greek could outcompete an ancient. Um, and I think that it's really important uh, for the rest of us to remind Islam how much it is given to the rest of us. Uh, and you know, this, this instinct goes in an opposite direction. I think you probably analytically correctly point out uh, a lot of the opportunity costs that have uh, been incurred by the, by the Islamic world. But uh, there's no shortage uh, of um, things to talk about. I mean, I would love to come back and talk about my passion for oud music uh, or, you know, the, the beauty of uh, Hebrew uh, paper mar marbling in, uh, in Turkish culture, the history of uh, calligraphy to get around the restrictions on depiction that uh, where the words actually form pictures. Mm. You know, th there's no, it, it's up to us to help. You know, the, the, Islam has in some sense fallen on hard times and it's going through an, an identity crisis. Why are these people uh, running around in short skirts or bikinis and taking drugs and having all kinds of uh, wild gay sex uh, out competing uh, mm -hmm. us in our piety and our adherence to our to our word? Um, you know, the words of our books. I, I think that, uh, you know, it's important that honor be understood um, because honor culture is different and that we work with what we have um, in part, uh, I think that the whole concept of the Judeo-Christian tradition in the US is one of these beautiful fictions that in some sense will become true by telling it enough times. And so I think it's very important to think about theater, to think about fiction and its role within truth. And you know what you said before about faith, we haven't talked at all about you know my passion for mathematics and physics, but the particular area of physics that I care most about, um, I use a faith module um, for intermediate steps in trying to figure out how to proceed. And, uh, you know, because our brains are maybe constructed for thinking about people, um, sometimes it helps to imagine nature as a creator um, and to be in conversation with a creator. And so the anthropomorphizing of design constraints Mm. Uh, as a creator can be extremely liberating and allows you to uh, hand wave and to black box certain things that if you were in a sort of rigorous paparian framework, uh, you'd be trapped on a local maximum and you could never cross the uh, adaptive landscape mm. um, and the adaptive valleys to, to borrow from uh, the evolutionary theory of civil rights.
not to insult my audience, but I feel like you probably lost a fair percentage of them in that last riff, just to sort of go back over that ground a little bit. First, let me just say that it sounds to me like you're you're making two cases simultaneously, and I'd like to differentiate them. One is you're making a pragmatic case that we have to deal with the world as we find it, right? So it is just a fact that most of the people on earth are religious and their religions are very important to them, and they're important not merely because of the propositional claims to be found in any of their scripture, but because of all of the other beauty and cultural richness that comes, or is at least deeply associated with the tradition. And you can't just w- wander into any souk and say, all of this is bullshit, but you know, I would still like some hummus, right? I mean, like the, the, you need to interact in a respectful, tolerant way with human, the human beings who you meet. Otherwise, you're just just engineering needless conflict for yourself. So I agree with that. And again, so and th- that's why I've always said that I don't think my you know if you, if you catch me in the moments when I am just drilling down on all that's wrong with with religious faith or Islam in particular, that slice of conversation with me is not the thing that's designed for export to the Muslim world to say you know here come you know join with us in this project of tearing down everything you care about. So there's, there's there's the pragmatic case, but then I hear you also making a deeper, more realistic case, not that maybe God exists, but that this way of thinking isn't just a regrettable feature of the world as we find it, but it's something that is has both been adaptive and going forward, there's, there's good reason to believe that we want to maintain this in some sense. We want to maintain, maintain the diversity of truth claims that come under the aegis of religion. I would certainly want to dispute that. And I don't think your the example you just gave of mathematical and, and physical creativity, mm-hmm. I don't think it really gives much impetus to that second, more realistic, more sympathetic claim. Because I, I you know, I see you can in purely heuristic terms, you can talk about, you know, maybe this has all been intelligently designed, or what how would I make the universe if I were setting it up and that may pay some real dividends for you as a mathematician or as a physicist. And there are, there are analogous moves I can make in my own thinking about what's real, which are useful. But I would argue th- those, those never derange our epistemology. Those are heuristics. Those are, are tools. They're games. They're moves we can make creatively, which never at the end of the day force us to, to make claims about the way the world is that are indefensible, or and certainly nothing that would require us to be motivated to behave badly on the basis of, of a conviction that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think that at some level, um, the way you're pointing at it, I would say that the, the atheist room in the house of my mind has space, special significance, hmm. or at least the reliable knowledge room um, has special significance. Now it's subject to updating. I mean, I I was told that all ulcers uh, came from stress. Yeah, and uh, to find out that they have um, a different origin is is uh, is shocking. Uh, also, very interesting. Um, with my work in physics, uh, the most unpleasant thing I have to do is to question Einstein because, at some level, he got in on the ground floor of how we think, and so it's very difficult to intermediate him because you sort of start your sentences presupposing a something like a space-time. And if that's not in fact right, it's very difficult to to get in underneath it. But I believe that in some sense, um, some of the religious parts of my mind 
have extremely special significance. And uh, the atheist room is merely the, the first among equals um, because I find that, let's say the skeptic movement, which is always tempting, uh, the problem is that it often ends up as sort of the copy editors of science, preserving that which has mm. been shown to be reliable, but being so um, eager to get rid of soft and squishy thinking that the creativity uh, that we need to get ourselves um, from being trapped around appealing but incomplete ideas uh, in general requires a lot of squishy thinking. So whether you're thinking about Kakuli figuring out the structure of benzene mm. by you know, seeing a snake eating its tail in a dream uh, to, to, to discern a ring structure or whether uh, Carrie Mullis is uh, you know, stoned and, or on acid and figuring out the uh, polymerase chain reaction. Mm. Um, I think it's extremely important to realize that uh, it's the atheist module which may maintain a reliable view of the world, but it is very often the faith modules which allow us to go against uh, you know, to fight one against the many, because fundamentally career suicide um, sounds like a self-extinguishing strategy, but it's often the people of faith who are willing to take those sorts of risks. Now, sometimes that faith is religious, sometimes it's a hunch, um, but getting in touch with that very different module, if, if I can just make the analogy, um, I think what you've done in some sense uh, for both good and bad, is you've built a mind that I analogize to Philip Johnson's uh, glass house uh, on the East Coast. Mm. And I think the bathroom was opaque to the other rooms, but otherwise you could see the dining room from the bedroom. Mm -hmm. um, and mm. what I'm worried about is, do you wanna see the bedroom from the dining room? That's a very interesting analogy. So so then take me into the faith room in your house or the religion room in your house, because I'm I, I feel like you're using faith and religion here in ways that may be misleading to one or both of us, and that if I if I could enter that room or compare it to the the similar room I have, I would not find anything to object to. So let me just let me just venture a guess about what is something that's in that room is that there is a kind of experience. Unfortunately, it's a kind of experience that many atheists don't tend to have, and that's why they're atheists, which perhaps you've had, I've certainly had in, in various ways, whether it's through meditation or psychedelics, there's, there's, you can, there's an experience of one's own conscious life, which can, certainly if you have it in the context of a faith tradition, can give motivation and credibility to many religious claims. Experiences of, you know, of meaning and, and the sacredness of, of one's conscious life in the present moment feelings of profundity, which the moment they become attached to anything in culture can imbue that with a kind of significance, you know, even a totemic significance, mm. which if you have no other place to stand critically or intellectually within that culture, well, then that's what's real. That's what's, you know, so if you're a Hindu and you're looking at a murti of, you know, Hanuman, feeling that, well, then worshiping Hanuman for the rest of your life is a totally rational thing to do. I mean, this is, this is your anchor to the most important experience you have. And then, you know, why spend a lot of time worrying about whether Hanuman, the monkey god, is really real and whether he really served Ram and whether the Ramayana is just literature or whether it's, you know, some, in some sense dictated by you know, spiritual beings. The, 
and then science and you know the 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 atheistic mind of science comes into all that saying well sorry guys but much of this is unprovable and certainly most of it is is has to be bullshit and that experience you just had well we're in the process of of resolving that all in terms of of neurotransmitters and that's there seems to be a disconnect between the truth module and the meaning richness of experience module but i don't think there has to be and so you know I, now i just as a that is a preamble you know i just invite you to talk about what how you're segregating these rooms in your own in the kind of the mansion of your own understanding of what's going on well i suppose part of it has to do with um i'm in the very unusual position um of being a phd who did not really have an, an advisor um and I think that I learned a lot of what I needed to learn uh, from very old texts uh, relative to the speed at which people publish. And so Einstein, in his writings, uh, I found an incredible source of inspiration. And I watched very carefully how he talked about the creator. Mm. And the creator stood in, if you will, uh, for order that he presumed to be present, but could not yet prove. Uh, you know, his, his debate with quantum about quantum mechanics wasn't that he didn't accept it, but he didn't accept it as bedrock the way perhaps someone like Bohr would have advanced to use it as a shibboleth to separate mm. those who could really do physics and those who just couldn't accept things being really, really weird. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, you, we have a very desperate situation in physics at the moment, which uh, not all physicists will, will admit, which is that, um, we have, more or less three or four equations uh, that represent our top level or bottom level understanding of the universe. And in some sense, at least three of the four of them seem to be best possible in their categories. So we're sort of, it feels like we're kind of at the end. We, nobody believes that it, we would be in this situation. So to even work on this problem um, is kind of intellectual suicide. We've gone for almost 40 years without an improvement um, validated by nature coming from theory and the standard model of physics. And you know, general relativity has sat mo mostly inert uh, since it was put in relatively final form around 1915 into the, into the early 20s. Mm. So, okay, why should you go into this? Why should you trade a, a career uh, you know, in management consulting or hedge fundery um, for almost certain doom. I think mm. it requires something of a religious spirit to play with the uh, outcomes uh, on the thick right tail of a power law of human existence where most, most likely you're going to fail, you're going to lose. That's the sort of mm. maximum likelihood. But the, uh, the thick right tail uh, calls us and speaks to our ability to improve the species and to increase our understanding of the cosmos. And I would not be able to think about these things so easily if I couldn't posit um, some version of the creator, right? Because I can't solve the I can't solve the question of why is there something rather than nothing. M my attempt is to say, assuming that there's calculus and linear algebra and nothing else, how close can I get to four-dimensional space-time with uh, three generations of fermions and the observed uh, forces. Uh, is there any way to get that out of emergence? That's a very tall order. And so it was almost certainly an insane thing to start a project like that for me. But 
in my experience, um, I would go into a closet in my mind and I would attempt to speak to this thing that could not speak. Uh, Einstein asked this one question which moved me, um, where she said, you know, I don't care about the spectrum of this or that element. What really concerns me is whether the creator had any choice. And I, that was really my research problem, um, which is, is, is the creator not all powerful or all knowing, but in fact, all constrained? Uh, a custodian whose only job is to switch on the, on the light of reality. Mm -hmm. um, and trying to think about uh, John Wheeler's concept of the universe e examining itself. That I, I view us in some sense as the emergent artificial intelligence, which will animate the creator when we turn in the source code, um, where the universe for, for the first time uses us as its artificial intelligence to contemplate its own reality, which it's never been able to do, uh, presuming that, uh, or at least in our little, in our little neighborhood. So the mm. question is, um, can you have a system that self-contemplates? And does that actually animate the creator? Are we supposed to bring the creator to some sentient perspective? Now that sounds insane in some level. It doesn't sound of a piece with, uh, here's the Lagrangian, here are the equations, that you have this differential operator over here. But well, it doesn't, if I could just interrupt you, it doesn't sound insane to me. It just sounds poetic and euphemistic more than literal I, what i hear you you i hear you using terms like faith and creator in a way that i would argue but for hearing you say more on this topic is not analogous to what's happening most of the time in religion for instance i wrote this my first book is entitled the end of faith but there are certain uses of the word faith that are totally unobjectionable to me so if you're going to tell someone to have faith in themselves or they have faith that in this case even spending the rest of their working life doing theoretical physics, they have faith that that project is going to turn out well. That's just not an egregious waste of their time. That kind of faith is just, I would argue, a, a it doesn't it doesn't entail any overweening epistemological claims. It just entails a, a kind of positive attitude in the face of uncertainty. And we we all get up in the morning not knowing how the day is going to turn out. There's a there's a certain faith implicit in just getting dressed and not killing yourself yep. right i mean so you like you're, you're you're assuming you know the vikings aren't going to show up and kill everyone and there's a functionally infinite number of of terrifying things that you are more or less ruling out by just not worrying about them and to have kids or do anything else in the context of the reality that we are just on on a rock hurtling th through a void uh, that you know could be bombarded at any moment by an asteroid or that you know that this rock could be swept by the next global pandemic, to live as we do happily, more or less seeking to maximize our well-being is, from that point of view, just a massive expenditure of faith. You know, it's just a giant faith project. Yeah. But it's a di that's a different kind of faith than the explicit claim that the creator of the universe wrote one of our books. And here it is, and I'm going to focus on its contents in a way that I will never focus on the on the contents of any other book. And that defines my life in a way that your life will never be defined unless you buy this cookbook. And now, you know, as, as liberal as I want to be, I am going to be in some sense hostage to some variant reading of this text. That, that that's the project that is is religious. And your use of the word creator, I think. And certainly Einstein's, I think, is again 
poetical and is in the sense is much more of the god of Spinoza than anything. It's a surrogate for the laws of nature. There's order, there's beauty, there's simplicity behind all of this. This design constraint is going to take care of me. This is crazier than that, right? This is saying that I'm going to accept thousand to one odds, mm. 10,000, 100,000 to one odds, that if I sail in this direction, I will hit land. It is the willingness to take on likely existential risk for the possibility of a payout using a rational mind. What's hitting land in this case? Well, for me, it would be unification in physics, but for somebody else, it might be solution to the Riemann hypothesis or P equals NP, or uh, whether you could start uh, an electric car company when nobody started a car company successfully and a solar company and a rocket company. You know, or, These things are stupid. But they're not that stupid. The self-extinguishing strategies are pretty scary. And I think that the point is almost nobody does this. This is a subset of people which mm. are animated by an idea that for some reason they will be able to cross that valley. Again, the value of it is not exclusively realized in victory, right? So if you're, if you're going to be, if you're going to spend your life trying to solve for Ma's last theorem, and you're not Andrew Wiles, and you know, Andrew Wiles hasn't come along yet, that is a, given the history, a quixotic thing to do, but failure to do it if you're a working mathematician who also teaches classes, who, who has a life as an academic, it's not synonymous with, I just ruined my life or wasted it in its entirety because I didn't solve Fermat's last theorem. And you know, so it would be with, with Elon you know, starting his company, some will fail, some will succeed. He'll, he's moving in, in a good direction whether or not he gets us to Mars, right? Of course, if you are Andrew Wiles, Right. And you do succeed, well, then, then you know, you get the last laugh. And it was not quixotic; it just took a, a heroic effort. Well, he did it as a he did it as a, a as a Princeton professor. Mm. He had a plan for which is that he was going to, you know, accumulate a certain amount of work and then push it out uh, as if he was actually working on these smaller problems, so that he could stay uh, in the good graces of, of his community. Mm. I'm talking about something more more violent, more quixotic, where you're talking about you know, destroying a marriage, not being able to feed yourself, um, doing really crazy things because you so believe that for some reason that you cannot justify, you are called to this thing. And the problem is, is that if the only people who engage in that uh, are not, are, are irrational people, then you get uh, all, of, all of the buck and none of the bang, right? If, if somebody who's really nutty signs up to do that, there's almost no way in which that person is going to be able to succeed. So I, I think what I'm trying to say is, is that we maintain different populations of people mm. and that those of us um, in my family, for example, uh, the people who were the most devout became the most uh, ardent atheists uh, when an uncle, great uncle of mine was killed stupidly and needlessly at the end of World War One, and they decided, well, there can't be a God if Uncle Sasha, mm -hmm. uh, you know, was killed for no reason. And so in part, um, the diehard atheist perspective, the very religious perspective, these are very extreme states. And what I'm trying to say is, is that some of us uh, are both rational and filled with faith, and that probably the origin of faith and its durability has to do with its utility. 
um, which is hard to see when it's gumming up the works and making it impossible to have a conversation, mm. right? So I think that it's a very interesting puzzle as to what it's doing here. Does it animate our rationality? Uh, you know, one of the great ironies will be is if my stuff ever works uh, works out and is accepted, um, I would have to ask the question whether it will be defended by people who take an extreme Popperian attitude of I'm not buying anything uh, unless a tremendous amount of experiment has been shown not to be in contradiction with it. So, you know, I, I didn't necessarily want to want to take us here, but I, I think that the problem is that there are many ways to see faith. And I don't discount the importance of the uh, very clean room in which reliable knowledge is the only thing that's privileged. But how do we get all this reliable knowledge? In part by people uh, flinging themselves into the void when they had what would seem to be better options. Um, mm. And I, I have to say that I think that some brains are more predisposed to transcendent states, to ecstatic states, to uh, being willing to take rationality uh, across one of these uh, harrowing, harrowing uh, valleys of death to to higher ground. And um, what I don't want to do is I don't want to privilege that one room of atheism is well, that's the real room, and, and the rest of the house is kind of nonsense um, because it's really the dialectic between uh, you know you're camping and decamping constantly between these different modules. And that's that's mm. that was the hard part about hearing hearing this idea that I can't change my beliefs as I change my clothes because it really matters to me if I'm gonna go into a very deep state of thought uh, to think that I am in some sense consulting the creator and that my job is to listen and to think that somehow this is all going to work out. Um, and I think that what I've found is, is that this is how a subset of people who are quite rational um, behave. And I think it's probably the origin of, of a lot of religious faith, uh, as a, as a tool for outcompeting other groups that probably very healthy to have skeptics, mystics, uh, and this kind mm -hmm. of a portfolio of diversity in trying to tackle really important problems. All of that's very interesting. I, I think, and certainly most of it, I agree with, I, I guess it's just doesn't summate to the, the counterpoint I'm hearing at least it sounds like you think you're delivering to, to my position against religion. Well, you, you've experienced transcendence and you've experienced these, you know, when I first heard the story of the burning bush, mm. uh, I didn't appreciate it um, because for Moses to come upon this uh, spectacle sounded like nonsense. And then with the aid of uh, chemicals, you can have experiences that were probably within your brain's capacity the entire time but you had no idea that as its owner, mm, you yeah. you know, it's like buying a house and finding it has a panic room in it uh, 17 years into living there. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's something that is possible to experience and yet wait with a different significance. It's not, it's not that it's any less significant, really. It's just that it it doesn't necessarily cause you to rewrite your epistemology or or add truth claims that you you wouldn't have the day before. I guess I'm I'm still hearing a what seems like a metaphoric use of faith and changing of belief rather than what I would consider a real one. So I so I would agree I have no doubt that 
entertaining certain models can be very useful. So to take a, a non-religious but still spooky one, and I guess it comes down to a kind of a difference between what's rational and what's reasonable, you know, or, or useful. Because, sure. because as you said, we want more out of life than just true beliefs, right? So if, if it's, it's not that we're constantly in the process of inventorying our propositional knowledge of the world and, and just running a kind of an antivirus program on, on these statements and then going to sleep at night convinced that we don't believe any bullshit. I mean, that's not the totality of our project or even most of it. But so you take something like Nietzsche's doctrine of eternal recurrence. Is that likely the idea that, that everything you're experiencing, you experience over and over again, you live this life, you know, an infinite number of times. Now in a multiverse, maybe in fact, that's true in some weird way. But let's just say that it's a claim about you as a single subject really living for eternity in this condition where you have to, every choice you make, you have to, you, you make it again and again and again and again. So is there any, is it ever reasonable to entertain that idea? Well, I think it does have a, if you, if you entertain it in whatever way you can without claiming to be sure it's true, mm -hmm. right? You can say, well, if I'm going to use that as a filter through which to look at all of my choices, right? So like if I knew that I had to have any given conversation an infinite number of times, like this is this will be part of the indelible record of my my lifeline in the cosmos and it's going to happen again and again and again and again, would I choose to do do this exactly as I'm doing it now? Would I would I want to be petty in the way that I just was petty again and again and again and again? And it has a kind of ethically clarifying result when you think in those terms. You say, you, why not use your time as productively and as beautifully as possible, given that it's going to repeat again and again and again? Well, I guess you could have the same effect if you just take the the atheist considerations. You get just one shot at this, right? This is the, the this is the only way you are going to live this Monday, because this Monday is never coming back, right? Use it wisely. You know that's probably something you could claim to believe and it might have the same effect but i'm just saying that there there are filters you can put on your cognitive and emotional life which you can hold in a kind of instrumental way you know it's not it's not the same thing as saying no no i believe that nietzsche was right about this right like i think that you know this is this is what i think is true and if you gave me a, a way to wager money on it i would wager money on it right if you ask someone who really believes in the 9-11 truth conspiracy theory, sure. right, that, you know, that Bush brought down the World Trade Center, and you ask them to have a conversation about it, and they give you all the, the rigmarole about the melting point of steel and Building 7, and people would have, you know, people rigged the buildings to explode, and you ask them how they got all that thermite into the buildings, and they, you know, they did it in the dead of night, and how many conspirators were involved, and there's an endless energy to talk about these things. And in that case, these really are propositional claims about what happened when no one was looking. And the, I think the people who believe this stuff really do believe it. And this is very much analogous to what happens in religion. This is, this is analogous to a Christian saying, no, no, you don't understand. I really think that Jesus was resurrected. I think he was nailed up on the cross. He was a human being. The tomb was empty. And he ascended. And what, what do you think ascension is? Well, I think it's actually, you know, it's, it's going up, you know, against gravity physically. 
And when the rapture happens, I'm going to be pulled up there. And if you're in a 747 at that moment, you're going to see me up, you know, in the stratosphere. I mean, these are whether they un, they are that explicit. If you get people talking, they believe something concrete. Well, can they're, they? They're not metaphorical moves. But can they? Can they then decamp? Right. So if you had told me, for example, that there was a super secret uh, organization inside of the FBI tried to induce uh, Martin Luther King to kill himself, mm -hmm. that tried to get uh, Gene Seberg, um, who was uh, the star of Goddard's Breathless, uh, to kill herself by claiming that she'd been impregnated with a Black Panther's uh, seed, even though she was married to a white man. And I that Fred, heard that story. And that oh. Fred Hampton, uh, inventor of the Rainbow Coalition, would be murdered in his bed by orders of a shadowy organization. Mm. Uh, and Dick Gregory would be handed over to the La Cosa Nostra uh, for, for them to do with him what, what they would, uh, I would call you insane. But that certain thing turned out to be COINTELPRO and mm. was discovered because somebody had faith enough to break into a, an FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania in 1971. And through Freedom of Information, uh, we learned that this crazy conspiracy theory turned out to be true. Mm. Now, my claim is uh, I wouldn't have wanted to be the the person designing that operation. So let me get this straight. We're going to break into a federal office. We're going to take some files. We're going to read them, and we're going to try to make fr freedom of information requests to discover a multi-year conspiracy theory with hundreds and thousands of FBI agents somehow mysteriously able to keep quiet. Um, well, you know, the Church Commission was had the easy part. They were able to say, "Yeah, we did. We did do that." And uh, you know, today, if I say. Did you know there was something called, uh, what is it, Section A of the Reserve Index for people to be rounded up in times of national emergencies, including professionals, professors, newscasters, the independently wealthy? That would sound crazy. So right. the problem with these things is that lots of things that sound nutty hmm. um, have to be explored in a faith-based context. Now, the question is, can you camp and decamp? So does that 9-11 truther have the ability to say, okay, so this is what I think happened. Now, let me put on a different hat and try to steel man the counter argument about plausibility. Mm. And we just had this with, you know, with Hillary Clinton uh, and uh, the claim that the, the Bernie Sanders people were crazy for thinking that the DNC had picked a candidate early. Mm. But immediately when these emails were released, immediately was the Russians did it. Mm. Right? So, the question about who gets to say what's crazy and who gets to camp and decamp. Um, we have had so many conspiracies that have been uncovered. I, I always find it really interesting. Somebody will say to me, you're not a conspiracy theorist, are you? And you know, I had a tweet a while back, which was after MKUltra and Operation Paperclip and mm. COINTELPRO, all smart people are conspiracy theorists. Do, you, do I look stupid? Um, so the, the question is, do you have enough you know, self-authorship of, of your own mind to explore things that might be nutty and then to do the editing mm. to see whether or not you achieve something in the nutty state? And can you go back and forth? I'm just not sure the, the words are retaining their meanings here because it's not, so for instance, there's no question that people sometimes conspire, right? So I already have a, a room in, this unexplored mansion, part rational. of the mansion, that, that is completely rational Got for it. me to open that door, right? So I, I'm not forsaking my 
any principle of rationality to to say this may be among the conspiracies I haven't heard about. Mm-hmm. It it only becomes irrational, like in the case of nine eleven truth it. for me, when I see that one the incentives are not aligned the way they should be. Two, the number of conspirators is so vast as to make any effective secrecy implausible. Three, the kind of reasoning that I notice people doing in order to defend the anomalies there becomes is, is so obviously post hoc and based on confirmation bias and a host of other kind of cognitive errors that it just the defenses are not plausible. But if you change all of that and you and you give me an allegation uh, about an egregious conspiracy that is more well behaved, whereas you know you you, you don't have you, you don't require five thousand conspirators, and you don't and you're it's not all pieced together after the fact, and the incentives make some sense. Well, then then I have a category for that, which is yes, that sometimes there really are you know mustache twirling conspirators who have access to information that we don't have, and they operate in darkness, and we find out thirty years later. And yes, it's true that for me to spend any time entertaining that in a condition where it's not yet plausible or not yet popular, yeah, that is a a kind of faith-based use of my time. I'm saying, well, is this is this worth doing or am I going to look crazy to my peers? You're taking an advance on your rationality. Right. So wh- what my claim is, is that, for example, let's imagine you're a biologist who believes in selection but doesn't believe that random mutation um, is the engine uh, of variation uh, mm. that powers selection. My claim is, is that's going to be a very tough position for you to hold, but if you happen to be of the belief that it's somehow intelligent design, you're maybe much more willing to take serious career risk to examine something that is too hot to handle for almost anyone else. Yes, I would, I would certainly grant you that. Right, and so the idea is that Let's imagine that there's something really wrong with the neo-Darwinian uh, hypothesis, which I, I may not just be about random mutation. I don't want to create a straw man there. Yeah. But it might be that at some point it is the religious who believe in a wrong idea, who'd be willing to take the heat, who would get sustenance from an alternate source of funding, who would uh, invest in that. And that may be, in fact, the source uh, of this crazy um, sus, you know, temporary suspension of rationality needed to achieve something. And so w- what I'm trying to suggest is not that religion isn't usually a distortion, hmm. but that it is often instrumental in the architecture for taking the risks needed to advance uh, reliable knowledge and rationality. And so, um, you know, I would be surprised if people uh, who are willing to make giant leaps of faith, again, usually when people don't camp and decamp, those people don't don't solve problems, right? Because it is this, this tension between these modules in the mind that is the most productive. And so I don't want to suggest that um, faith-based people who just believe in every conspiracy theory are, are doing you know the, the really hard mm. and heavy lifting. But it is a subset of people who maintain tensions between these things, uh, I think, who are often the most productive. And this is why, in some sense, your discussion of spirituality and psychedelics, uh, which goes beyond some of the um, 
places that I think some of your your fellow travelers in, in the new atheist movement are willing to go is so interesting because mm-hmm. it, it evidences an awareness of tensions that other people, you know, you, there's something instinctual about your body of work where when most people are in the shallow end, you swim to the deep end uh, to explore territory that other people, you know, where, where, where angels fear, fear to tread, I often find uh, you hard at work. I wanted to read something uh, which changed my life a great deal. And it's an essay uh, by Arthur Kussler, which is too long uh, for the podcast, mm. but it's called On Disbelieving Atrocities. Mm. And the most interesting thing about it is that it carries a, a publication date in the New York Times of 1944. Mm. And what it is a discussion of um, is the Holocaust before the world is ready to hear that it is going on. And there is, in particular, uh, a paragraph talks about what it is like to hold this position in a hostile universe, mm. which doesn't wish to believe this because of uh, various state interests. Before you read that essay, there's one thought I just occurred to me, because I, I love the phrase you used, taking an advance on your rationality. And I, I totally agree that we want we want to acknowledge that there's there's an essential role played by people who can do this. The Quixotic project is sometimes the only the only project that will save us in the end. And the the person, you know, the journalist who will spend half a career sleuthing out some conspiracy that in turns out to be, in fact be a real conspiracy that is consequential. We are incredibly grateful for that effort in the end. So it's that is a feature of our society that we want to encourage, and we want the walls of orthodoxy to be more permeable or less tall than they than they often are. But I just don't see how any of that necessarily links up with religion. And some of the examples you put forward of people who do this and take risks to do it are obviously people who are not driven by religion. I mean, so you know. Elon being you know, one example you gave him, mean, he's, he's, he's taking these huge risks and they, they're bearing fruit or not. But at the back of all that is not anything like a religious motive. It is just a, a, a very sense that this is the direction I want to go in. And I'm not too troubled by the lack of a guarantee that it's going to work out. I mean, it's, somebody's going to have to go in this direction eventually. And, I, and wh- why not be that somebody? So he wants to be presumably Adam of Adam and Eve to colonize an entire planet. Uh, he wants to save humanity from its dependence mm. on fossil fuels, uh, rescuing humanity. I, I mean, L. Ron Hubbard dreamed up stuff that seems... Yeah, but he's actually building rockets. L. Ron Hubbard's rocket was a Boeing 737 that was piloted by aliens. I know. That but dropped, El, dropped I mean, Rathatons into a volcano. I think that uh, L. Ron Hubbard uh, was uh, interested in doing other terrestrial things, and Elon is actually interested not in playing at religion, but you know, just the way uh, you guys have made this very interesting point that um, the great atheist... Uh, governmental experiments that ended in so many deaths in the 20th century were actually religious in some way, uh, which I think is an interesting mm. point. I don't, I don't quite get the same um, good feeling from that that you do, but it, it certainly needs to be enter- entertained. I think that um, there is something religious uh, about this kind of faith. I don't know him. I've never mm. met him, mm. but I do think that uh, it is emblematic 
uh, of the mindset that I would say uh, would have a faith, would be permeable to faith. And the speed with which he picked up on AI and this uh, mm. sort of artificial general intelligence apocalypse um, you know, suggests that that mind is, uh, is also permeable to things that are at least uh, in the general neighborhood of faith. Um, because the idea of building a golem that could, in fact, uh, you know, destroy you, there's, you know, a very religious aspect to this uh, singular act of uh, violent creation. Yeah, well, there that may take us far farther afield than we want to go. But there, I would actually just disagree that it's much more a matter of seeing the implications of just progress in that area it's like like for for me the you know to take the ai case i actually just gave a ted talk on this which is not yet online but will be i think in a few weeks it's just a very straightforward extrapolation based on three propositions i mean if intelligence is just a matter of information processing and we continue to improve systems that process information eventually at really at any rate of progress we will find ourselves in the presence of superintelligence unless we destroy ourselves some other way along along the way and we stop making that progress. So just progress, indefinite progress, lands us in the presence of something that is like as has happened for chess and just happened for Go, something that is cognitively better than us just across the board. And the moment you imagine ma- allowing it to make improvements to its own source code because it's now the best mind to do the job, then something like an intelligence explosion is worth worrying about. As strange an idea as it seems, I just don't see any natural stopping point between here and there. It is very much a, in some sense, just as simple as the truth of exponentiation. I mean, you tell me that that two times two is four, and you know I keep raising it to uh, further powers, and then you say, well, you know, the implication here is that if you could fold a piece of paper a hundred times, and you just you ju- you just take two to the hundredth power and multiply that by the, the thickness of the paper, what you get is not what your intuition tells you, which is something the size of a cinder block. It's actually bigger than the, the known universe, right? That's totally counterintuitive. And yet I believe it just based on seeing how you know the arithmetic runs. That move from intuitive arithmetic, you know, two times two equals four, to fold this paper a hundred times and it's light years across, that move for me is not, it's just a, it's a rational extrapolation on based on what I can kind of intuitively confirm. It's not the same kind of faith claim. And it's defeasible in, in the presence of deeper insights and better judgment. So for instance, if you came to me and said, well, listen, I'm a mathematician and you're not, and there's this, now there's this conversation happening in mathematics that's incredibly fruitful that you know nothing about, which suggests that arithmetic breaks down in ways that are counterintuitive and actually exponentiation breaks down. And we have just discovered that there's good reason to believe that, you know, once you raise two to to the 80th power, things begin to look a little different than you suppose based on the arithmetic you learned. Well, I don't know enough about math to immediately rule that out as all, you know, all you mathematicians are wrong. So there is a kind of faith placing move on my side, which I just, for lack of bandwidth and lack of expertise, I just have to indulge, which is, you know, on, on some level, I'm just waiting for the mathematicians to tell me what math is, right? Because I'm not doing the math myself. The difference is one gesture 
is constantly revisable based on further conversations, whereas the other is anchored to the book that can never be wrong, right? And it's and if it's revisable, it's only revisable within the far stricter parameter of we have to find some way to massage this, the spirit of the text versus the letter of the text in order to get more more of what we want out of life, but still not migrate too far from the tradition. And so that's, I mean, where you want to place the difference, I, I, I don't really care, but it seems to me there really is a big difference between having a truly open-ended cognitive future in which we just entertain new evidence and new arguments, no matter where they come from, ultimately, and being kind of hostage to a, a seventh century conversation or a first century conversation or earlier, but based on, on a religious tradition. So it's a very interesting problem. I, I know you've had some interaction with Eliezer Yudkowsky. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, you know, Eliezer, I, I don't know that he has a degree in, in much of anything. He's got, he doesn't even have a high school degree. Yeah. Poor guy. Um, yeah. Super bright, super yeah. interesting. And, you know, the thing that he has is he's got some sort of a decision tree to walk you through to try to figure out why you're not spending all your time worried about the problem of steering potentially hostile AI as the leading existential threat. So he mm-hmm. doesn't see jihadism uh, as the thing to be working on. He doesn't understand why you're wasting your energy on that when, in, in fact, humanity should be able to go on mm-hmm. uh, as long as you leave a small number of humans to repopulate. So what the reason that the AI steering problem has become a shibboleth or really the IQ test for the rationality community to see uh, who can cut it and who can't is because you actually have to keep a fairly large tree in your mind of, do you believe this or that? And, you know, it's, it's like a Drake equation in some sense where mm-hmm. you have to multiply a lot of things together to see that this is actually the problem to work on. And I think that in some sense to have so many uncertain things um, lined up and then to say, Actually, the log- the logic is is so good that it merits almost all of our attention. Um, th- this is a very quixotic uh, endeavor. Now, he may be right. Hmm. He may absolutely be right. And it is a an interesting thing of would you get there by faith? Would you get there by reason and say, you know, it's like white to move and made in 17, but somehow you think you see the combination and there's no way to escape the, your fate? Um, I, I think that... Uh, it's a really interesting problem as to what's going on in that community. And I'm, I'm not discounting mm. what they're doing. I think that they may in fact be right. Um, and I keep having them try to work on me so that uh, I figure out that I should drop what I'm doing and, and just mm. volunteer my time to go help them. But I, I, I do feel that, um, that there is an interplay that even if, if you're doing something reasonable that feels intu- intuitively wrong, uh, we often supplement with faith. And so this whole idea about taking an advance is, is a very strong um, belief structure for me. I, you know, I, I, I believe that the best advice to people is, is not uh, under-promise and over-deliver, it's over-promise and over-deliver. Mm-hmm. And in general, uh, that's very tough because you're constantly stealing from the till at the beginning of the day and assuming that you'll make enough money to pay it back by the end. And I I distinguish very strongly, for example, between imposters and frauds. To me, a fraud is somebody who takes money out of the till and has no idea that they're going to uh, ever replace it. You know, they sign up to do a brain surgery because it it pays and they don't have any idea that they could actually pull it off because they have no credential. An imposter is somebody who might take it it on, but has the idea that somehow uh, between now and the brain surgery, they're going to figure out how how to do this 
and not only pull it off, but innovate there. And so I think that um, the willingness to take these advances uh, mm. varies very strongly between people. And in part, um, if you've ever had a faith-based exploration, which was really some sort of incomplete rationality where you couldn't fill in all the steps, but you mm -hmm. just had the gut feeling system one, I'm gonna go for it. That thing, once it's rewarded a couple of times, builds up a sort of crazy faith in oneself. And you often see people you know, play one too many times uh, and not, not pull it off. So I do think that there's a very interesting interplay between uh, rationality and faith, between truth and fiction. I think once uh, I remember hearing somebody ask John Updike, um, why is it that you write fiction? Why don't you write about the truth? And he said, you know, something like, my good man, what is it you think great fiction is? Mm -hmm. you know, it's, to him, it was hyper-truth. Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, really all I'm pushing for is um, a recognition that a small subset of human beings uh, uses a lot of this architecture in a really unusual way mm -hmm. with uh, unlikely things, things that have no empirical basis. So we've never created an AGI, therefore most people don't worry about something that has never happened before, mm -hmm. just the way they don't worry. You know, Of course, man will never fly. People have been trying to do that for a long time, but why didn't they start thinking about this problem uh, You know, in uh, the year 100 AD? Because they, they might have said, you know, sooner or later, we're going to have some kind of uh, mechanical computational, you know, we have abacus, uh, mm -hmm. we need all the time we can get to solve the steering problem. So it's kind of interesting that this only erupted recently. It seems to have come out of a very small number of people. Mm. And it has particular characteristics that are tied to the rationality community. So I wanted to read two paragraphs from this most important essay that seems to have been largely forgotten. Mm. I'll, I'll put a link to the essay where I embed this on my blog. Terrific. That we could do no better service to yeah. the world. <laughs> so this is Arthur Kessler in, I think, 1944. As to this country, I have been lecturing now for three years to the troops, and their attitude is the same. They don't believe in concentration camps. They don't believe in the starved children of Greece, in the shot hostages of France, in the mass graves of Poland. They have never heard of Lidis, Treblinka, or Belzec. You can convince them for an hour then they shake themselves. Their mental self-defense begins to work. And in a week, the shrug of incredulity has returned like a reflex temporarily weakened by a shock. Clearly, all this is becoming a mania with me and my like. Clearly, we must suffer from some morbid obsession, whereas the others are healthy and normal. But the characteristic symptom of maniacs is that they lose contact with reality and live in a fantasy world. So perhaps it is the other way around. Perhaps it is we, the screamers, who react in a sound and healthy way to the reality which surrounds us, whereas you are the neurotics, who totter about in a screened fantasy world because you lack the faculty to face the facts. Were it not so, this war would have been avoided, and those murdered within sight of your daydreaming eyes would still be alive. Now, mm. this is what it means to know that the Holocaust is going on, and to know that fundamentally, what you're trying to say is being resisted universally and that it is a tiny group who is actually seeing the world correctly, misportrayed by the masses as if they'd lost their mind or that they were afflicted with some deep moral affliction. Mm. So the real reason that I'm down here is because I see you in something of this role. And I see that the number of people, particularly coming from what might be termed a left-wing background, mm. uh, who are holding these positions that are so difficult to hold are so few in number. And I think what's imperative is, is that we restart uh, a different conversation between the most articulate and clear thinking on the right and the most articulate and clear thinking on 
the left, uh, where we are in fact capable of filtering out the incredible pressure not to talk about race in open terms, not to talk about immigration or trade or terror. Mm-hmm. And I think what what happens is that you've taken a massive advance on your future vindication. And I really want don't want to get to the point where we're looking at the vindication as coming from an empirical situation where terrible things have to happen before people shake themselves loose. Mm. And so think about yourself in 1944. You're you're listening to this person who describes his group as the screamers trying to tell you about something that will dominate our our picture of what happened during World War II. But it's so late in the war, the evidence is abundant. Have you have you ever heard of the name and I'm probably going to mispronounce it, Wit- Witold Pilecki? No. No. Wouldn't it be strange if there were a Polish non-Jew who dressed up as a Jew in order to be taken into Auschwitz, collect information, organize something of the resistance, and then try to escape, smuggle it out. Wouldn't you imagine that Jews would have an entire month dedicated to this human being? Yeah. Yeah. If only it were true. If only there were a movie about it. So I think that part of the problem is, is that we have had our heroes deliberately removed. We don't know these names. The average person doesn't know the name Dick Gregory, although he's still alive. Uh, and was you know Martin Luther's uh, King's right hand man in many ways, because for some reason these most important stories animate a belief in heroism. And I think that one of the things that we learned at a governmental level was that when Lindbergh uh, minted his own credibility and received his ticker tape parades and became a national hero, he was almost single handedly able to keep the U.S. out of World War II. When when Roosevelt very much wanted to get us in World War II. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a real question about where are our living heroes? We've always had them, mm. but there are very few that we can point to who are capable of using uh, some self-minted credibility uh, to correct governmental action. When, uh, when Einstein stood up to the McCarthy hearings uh, on behalf of a, a physicist um, who was not of great rep reputation, but was being hauled in front of McCarthy, uh, he lent his name. And in fact, the US went on a little campaign to discredit Einstein in anything area other than physics, claiming he was too naive. Hmm. So I think it's really important to understand that we've been here repeatedly. And at least since Lindbergh, we've had a very hard time with a few exceptions, finding anyone who would mint their own credibility and stand in opposition to these really large institutions. Hmm. And I think that this is really what you're doing. And so one of the things that I try to talk about in terms of leadership is that we we always talk about leadership, but not followership. And one of the things that I try to do as a relatively strong voice is to lend my voice in the support of others. Because I think that if we don't teach people that there's no shame in following others who are doing the noble work, uh, we have leaders, but no followers and nothing much gets done. And so even though I think, you know, as you've heard, I, I, I am critical of some of the things that you've said and done, mm. uh, I think that it's important to realize that there's a really heroic aspect to this project. And one does not need to sign up for all aspects of it to see that the decency uh, and the attempt at clarity and fairness is unmistakable. Mm. And so to all of these people who've gone after you, um, I was really interested in Cenk Uyghur's uh, 
worldview for a long time. I've yeah. held Glenn Greenwald in respect. I've talked to Chomsky when I lived in Cambridge uh, and thought highly of his ability to hold independent opinions. We are witnessing something very, very strange. And it's important that we check ourselves and try to figure out, are these real conflicts or are these conflicts that have been scripted for us because we've been given very small postage stamps of safe land in which to stand intellectually? And I think that there's a coming together that is absolutely necessary because I don't want a conversation conducted by Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I have no use for either of these people. This is a conversation that we have to have, and it's a different generation. It's a different worldview, and it's a different intellectual ante that has to be put up to talk about these most difficult topics. And it requires humility, it requires a willingness to learn, to camp, decamp, to change one's mind and revise. And I think that that's really what your core message is. And I'm very angry at those who have hijacked it uh, cynically because there's no question that uh, someone with the skill and grace of a Reza Aslan uh, could easily see your point if he, only he were striving to see it. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, is that there are two things that we're fighting. One is we're fighting uh, this narrative that wherever there's smoke, there's always fire. And if you know anything about mm. cooking oil, uh, there's a smoke point, there's a flash point, and there's a flame point, and they're not the same. So you can easily have smoke without fire. And that's where you and I, I think, stand. There's a lot of smoke and there's no fire. The other thing is I don't find my inclusion in the group of European Americans a particularly interesting group. Um, I think that fundamentally this idea that we are entitled to tar people because of group membership with some sort of universal responsibility where the individuals conduct themselves very differently is the second part of this. And I think that the third part is, is that you're not allowed to hold opinions that are adjacent to very dangerous opinions. Hmm. And so maybe the, the most difficult thing I'm going to have to say is that a lot of weird truth um, that was misused in the 20th century became the property of wingnuts where only the wingnuts are able to say certain things that sound like eugenics, mm. that sound like uh, phrenology, that sound like uh, restrictionism you know, on, Im on immigration. I could go on and on. Yeah. And so the important thing to realize is that there's a lot of stigmatized truth that needs to be reclaimed. And I think that this is a lot of where y you are finding your difficulties. And it's important that people realize that there's no way of attacking any one of us individually. We are finding each other. We are building a collective voice. We are not all the same, but we recognize civility, comity, uh, and the importance uh, of building a shared intellectual tradition, which is really the multiculturalism which has the greatest future. And so I'm mm. super excited to be here, to lend my voice, to do that, whether or not I agree with the next podcast you do or not. I have mm. great faith in the, in, in the process. And I think that's one of the things that you guys have, have pointed out, which is this is the group that can say, you know what, I made a mistake. Uh, mm. I learned something new, I changed my mind. And these are the hallmarks along with Steel Manning and, and some of the things you've talked about under Rappaport's rules um, that should be the sine qua non uh, of mature discussion. And I think that it's very important that either you get a referee for your podcast so that you're not mm -hmm. having to call mm -hmm. people out or that you stop them as soon as you've tried two or three times and the misrepresentation uh, is too severe. Interesting. Well, that, that's all great and by turns very flattering to hear. I mean, it's, it's, great to, it's great to have your voice on the podcast. It's great to have you thinking out loud about how we can enge engineer this conversation 
and get it to scale and, and make it more durable. And I'm I'm very happy to continue the conversation with you in whatever venues or formats we figure out going forward. Just to tie down one of the last things you said to yet another general principle that should be recalled is that one thing I, I hear operating here or experience operating here is people's, and this is off what you said about dangerous ideas or adjacently dangerous ideas that need to be reclaimed. There are many scary ideas, and we mentioned eugenics or ideas in that area as one, which are not obviously false, but which many people find deeply scary, offensive, unnerving. And people have to recognize, and this is just a principle of intellectual honesty, that we have to we have to plant a flag here and always be able to point back to the flag and keep the conquered ground. People have to recognize that merely being offended or worried isn't a counterargument. It isn't a deep reason not to think about something or or discover whether or not something is true or useful. So one's offense is not an argument. And that's something that not knowing allows people to just stigmatize views they don't like without ever feeling the the need internally on their side to produce a counterargument or to produce counter-evidence. They just don't like the way something sounds, or they have mistaken it for some adjacent thing that is you know, superficially similar to it that they also don't like and against which they, they probably also don't have a good argument. And there's a difference between something being false and being dangerous. I mean, there, you know, this is something that Dan Dennett has often speculated about in public, and, and I think I agree with him. I think they're probably true beliefs that we don't want to have, or that at least we don't want to make too explicit, or we don't want to spend much time unveiling, because they would be dangerous to believe, or they would, be, they would, they would block many other pathways forward that we actually want to explore. The simplest example of this kind of thing is there's no reason to publish the recipe for weaponizing smallpox online for all to see and, and tinker with, because you know though it's, it may be factually true, it doesn't do us any good to, to make that knowledge explicit. And there may be many other things like that, and there may be something in areas far more intimate to our sense of ourselves and the world that are like that. I, mean, I think Dan Dennett thinks that much of what I've said about free will sort of falls into that category, where there's, there are truths that are best left not lingering on, or at least need to be repackaged for export into people's minds so as to get people to behave in ways we want them to behave. And I think that's, we just need a category for that, that area of truth so that, that it's, it's, there are truths that either need to be avoided or need to be just put back on the shelf because they're not worth dwelling on. But we can navigate all of these controversial conversations without deliberately misrepresenting the views of our opponents or shirking the burden of providing a counterargument to ideas that we don't like. And I, and I see you as someone who's very much of like mind on that topic. And that's just great to have, have met you. I think that, you know, that what it really requires is um, an inventory of who can play with fundamental decency as the first requirement. And, you know, very often the people who are most afraid to, to open a topic have a fear that that topic is going to go south. Yeah. Hmm. simple example would be that I think a lot of people who are afraid about the issue of race and intelligence is one of the most frightening issues, yeah. secretly fear that they're going to find something very disturbing. And that those of us who actually have an idea that there will be multivariate forms of intelligence 
and that um, nobody's going to be too far out of the running uh, are much more willing to say, you know, we should probably look at this scientifically. So I've given the example repeatedly that African-Americans in this country are not, um, well, they often excel uh, and choose sports and mental sports in which real-time improvisation uh, is at a premium. So whether it's playing the dozens and insulting people in real time mm-hmm. or head cutting contests in jazz or blues uh, or speed chess rather than regular chess, you know, my belief is, is that if we erected intelligence tests around uh, open contests, the way, let's say, the bebop musicians tried to demonstrate intellectual superiority at Minton's Playhouse in Harlem by saying anybody, white, black, green, blue, doesn't matter. If you can take the stage and you can play uh, 16 and 30 second notes uh, as fast as we can, uh, you're welcome to share the stage. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, people who hold that per- sort of a perspective uh, say, you know, I don't know what we're going to find, but it's going to be interesting. It's not going to be so damning. And so very often it's the tell that uh, the, those who are going after us when we try to actually investigate these things are actually harboring deep fears that we don't have. And I think, you know, I was very, very touched. That was very gracious. I think what we do need to do is to have, a, first of all, a fundamental commitment to decency, and second of all, commitment to this kind of intellectual honesty, and a third of faith that, in some sense, everything's going to work out if we just think mm. rigorously and kindly enough. So thanks mm. for having me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that last point, though, brings me to a question that I had forgotten I wanted to ask you, which I've asked several very smart guests at this point, and this will be the last question, but who is your vote for the smartest person in human history, if we had to put one mind up in dialogue with the aliens, who would you nominate? It could, could be someone alive or dead, who you've met or not. And the standard answer might be Newton. Mm. I have a particular reverence for Dirac and Einstein, but um, you know, I fear that uh, that contains a bent um, that uh, privileges the analytic. So I, I'll say the safe answer Newton, but I fear that it might actually be somebody uh, much more in the squishy uh, literary philosophical era, area, and I just don't, I don't know that person's name, but I'll oh, say Newton. Interesting. Yeah, well, you, you, you can't go too far wrong with Newton, and he's also an existence proof of the fact that you can be among the smartest people who's ever lived and be a, a proper asshole as well. In, in your and dealing. confused about a great many things. Yes, and spend half your time on alchemy and theology. So anyway, we'll leave that there. And it's really been great to have you, Eric. And I hope we do this again at some point. Till next time, Sam.